age, and no pictures neither. Well, that's something. Freedom of the press was all very well and good, but there were times when Roland Bell wouldn't mind a certain amount of censorship when it came to revealing witnesses' identities and addresses. Now, y'all wait in the hall. I want to check out the inside. Yes, sir. Bell stepped into the apartment and looked it over. The front door was secured by two deadbolts and a steel police lock rod. The front windows looked out on the townhouses across the street. He pulled the shades down. The side windows opened onto an alley and the building across the way. The facing wall, though, was solid brick and there were no windows that presented a vantage point for a sniper. Still, he closed the windows and locked them, then pulled the blinds shut. The place was large. There were two doors to the hallway, one in the front at the living room and a second in the back off a laundry room. He made sure the locks were secured and returned to the hallway. Okay, he called. Geneva and her uncle returned. It's looking pretty good. Just keep the doors and windows locked and the blinds drawn. Yes, sir, the man said. I'll be sure to do that. I'll get the letters, Geneva said. She disappeared toward the bedrooms. Now that Bell had examined the place for security, he looked at the room as a living space. It struck him as cold, spotless white furniture, leather and linen all covered with plastic protectors, tons of books, African and Caribbean sculptures and paintings, a china cabinet filled with what seemed like expensive dishes and wine glasses, African masks, very little that was sentimental, personal, hardly any pictures of family. Bell's own house was chock-a-block with snaps of kin, especially his two boys, as well as all their cousins back in North Carolina. Also a few pictures of his late wife, but out of deference to his new Bell, Lucy Kerr, who was a sheriff down in the Tar Heel State, there were none of his wife and Bell together, only of mother and sons. Lucy, who was herself well represented on his walls, had seen the pictures of the late Mrs. Bell and her children, and announced she respected him for keeping those up. And one thing about Lucy, she meant what she said. Bell asked Geneva's uncle if he'd seen anybody he hadn't recognized around the townhouse lately. No, sir, not a soul. When will her parents be back? I couldn't say, sir. Was Geneva talked to him? Five minutes later, the girl returned. She handed Bell an envelope containing two yellow, crisp pieces of paper. Here they are, she hesitated. Be careful with them. I don't have copies. Oh, you don't know Mr. Rhyme, miss. He treats evidence like it was the Holy Grail. I'll be back after school, Geneva said to her uncle. Then to Bell, I'm ready to go. Listen up, girl, the man said. I want you to be polite the way I told you. You say sir when you're talking to the police. She looked at her uncle and said evenly, Don't you remember what my father said? That people have to earn the right to be called, sir? That's what I believe. The uncle laughed. That's my niece for you. Got a mind of her own. Why, we love her. Give your uncle a hug, girl. Embarrassed, like Bell's sons when he put his arm around them in public, the girl stiffly tolerated the embrace. In the hallway, Bell handed the uniformed officer the letters. Get these over to Lincoln's townhouse ASAP. Yes, sir. After he'd left, Bell called Martinez and Lynch on his radio. They reported that the street was clear. He hurried the girl downstairs and into the Crown Vic. Pulaski trotted up and jumped in after them. 
As he started the engine, Bell glanced at her. Oh, say, miss, when you got a minute, how about you look in that knapsack of yours and pick me out a book you won't be needing today? Book? Like a school book. She found one. Social studies? It's kind of boring. Oh, it's not for reading. It's for pretending to be a substitute teacher. She nodded. Fronting, you're a teacher. Hey, that's deaf. I thought so, too. Now, you want to slip that seatbelt on? It'll be much appreciated. You too, rookie. Chapter 9 Unsub 109 might or might not have been a sex offender, but in any event, his DNA sequence wasn't in the CODIS file. The negative result was typical of the absence of leads in the case, rhyme reflected with frustration. They'd received the rest of the bullet fragments, recovered from Dr. Barry's body by the medical examiner, but they were even more badly shattered than the one removed from the woman bystander and were of no better use in an ibis or drug fire check than the earlier pieces. They'd also heard from several people at the African American Museum. Dr. Barry hadn't mentioned to any employees that another patron was interested in the 1868 Colored's Weekly Illustrated. Nor had the museum phone records revealed anything. All calls went into a main switchboard and were directed to extensions with no details kept. The incoming and outgoing calls on his cell phone offered no leads either. Cooper told them what he'd learned from the owner of Trenton Plastics, one of the country's largest makers of plastic shopping bags. The tech related the history of the smiley face icon as told to him by the company's owner. They think the face was originally printed on buttons by a subsidiary of state mutual insurance in the 60s to boost company morale and as a promotional gimmick. In the 70s, two brothers drew a face like it with the slogan, Be Happy, sort of an alternative to the peace symbol. By then it was being printed on 50 million items every year by dozens of companies. The point of this pop culture lecture, Rhyme murmured, that even if it's copyrighted, which no one seems to know, there are dozens of companies making smiley face bags, and it'd be impossible to trace. Dead end. Of the dozens of museums and libraries that Cooper, Sachs, and Silito had queried, two reported that a man had called in the past several weeks asking about an issue of Colored's Weekly Illustrated from July 1868. This was encouraging, because it supported Rhymes' theory that the magazine might be the reason Geneva was attacked. But neither of the institutions had the issue, and no one could remember the name of the caller, if he'd even given it to them. Nobody else seemed to have a copy of the magazine for them to look at. The Museum of African American Journalism in New Haven reported that they had had a full set on microfiche, but it had disappeared. Rhyme was scowling at this news, when a computer chimed and Cooper announced, We've got a response from Vicap. He hit a button and sent the email to all the monitors in Rhyme's lab. Salito and Sachs huddled around one. Rhyme looked at his own flat screen. It was a secure email from a detective in the crime scene lab in Queens. Detective Cooper, per your request, we ran the crime profile you provided through both Vicap and Hits and have two matches. Incident 1. Homicide in Amarillo, Texas, case number 3451-01, Texas Rangers. Five years ago, 67-year-old Charles T. Tucker, a retired state worker, was found dead behind a strip mall near his home. 
He had been struck in the back of the head with a blunt object, presumably to subdue him, then lynched. A cotton-fiber rope with a slipknot was placed around his neck and thrown over a tree limb, then pulled tight by the assailant. Scratch marks at the neck indicated victim was conscious for some minutes before death occurred. Elements of similarity with unsub-109 case. Victim was subdued with a single blow to the back of the head. Suspect was wearing size 11 walking shoes, most likely Bass brand, uneven wear on right one, suggesting outturned foot. Cotton fiber rope with bloodstains was murder weapon, fibers similar to those found at present scene. Motive was staged. The murder appeared to have been ritualistic. Candles were set on the ground at his feet, and a pentacle was drawn in the dirt. But investigation into the victim's life and profiling of the offense led investigators to conclude that this evidence was planted to lead the police off. No other motive was established. No fingerprints were recovered. Suspect wore latex gloves. Status? Active. What's the next case? Rhyme asked. Cooper scrolled down. Incident 2. Homicide in Cleveland, Ohio. Case 2002-34554F. Ohio State Police. Three years ago, a 45-year-old businessman, Gregory Tallis, was found dead in his apartment, shot to death. Elements of similarity with unsub-109 case. Victim was subdued with blows to the back of the head with a blunt object. Shoe prints of suspect identical to Bass brand walking shoes with outward pointing right foot. Cause of death was three gunshots to the heart. Small caliber, probably 22 or 25, similar to present case. No relevant fingerprints were recovered. Suspect wore latex gloves. Victim's pants were removed and a bottle inserted into his rectum with apparent intent to suggest he was the victim of a homosexual rape. The Ohio State Police profiler concluded that the scene was staged. The victim was scheduled to testify in a forthcoming organized crime trial. Bank records indicate that the defendant withdrew 50000 in cash one week prior to the killing. However, the money could not be traced. Authorities presume that this was the fee paid to a hired killer to murder Tallis. Status? Open but inactive due to misplaced evidence. Misplaced evidence, Rhyme thought. Jesus. He looked over the screen. Staging evidence to set up a phony motive and another fake ritualistic assault. He nodded at the hanged man tarot card. Subduing with the club... Then strangulation or shooting, latex gloves, the bath shoes, the right foot. Sure, it could be our boy. And it looks like he's a hired gun. If so, we've probably got two perps. The unsub and whoever hired him. All right. I want everything Texas and Ohio have on both those cases. Cooper made some calls. He learned that the Texas authorities would check the file and get back to them as soon as possible. In Ohio, though, a detective confirmed that the file was among those for dozens of cold cases misplaced in a move to a new facility two years ago. They'd look for it. 
But, the man added, don't hold your breath. Rhyme grimaced at this news and told Cooper to urge them to track it down, if at all possible. A moment later, Cooper's cell phone rang, and he took the call. Hello? Go ahead. He took some notes, thanked the caller, then hung up. That was traffic. They finally tracked down outstanding permits for carnivals or fairs big enough to close streets in the past few days. Two in Queens, one neighborhood association and one Greek fraternal order, a Columbus Day festival in Brooklyn, and another one in Little Italy. That was the big one, Mulberry Street. We should get some teams out to all four neighborhoods, Rhyme said. Canvas all the discount variety store and drug stores that use smiley face bags that sell condoms, duct tape, and box cutters and use a cheap cash register or adding machine. Give the team the description of the unsub and see if any clerks can remember him. Rhyme was watching Salido stare at a small dark dot on his suit coat sleeve. Another bloodstain from the shooting that morning, he assumed. The big detective didn't move. Since he was the senior cop here... He was the one to call ESU and patrol and arrange for the search teams. It seemed that he hadn't heard the criminalist, though. Rhyme glanced at Sachs, who nodded and called downtown to arrange for the officers to set up the teams. When she hung up, she noticed Rhyme was staring at the evidence board, frowning. What's wrong? He didn't answer right away, mulling over what exactly was wrong. Then he realized, fish out of water. Think we need some help here. One of the most difficult problems criminalists face is not knowing their territory. A crime scene analyst is only as good as his knowledge of the area suspects inhabit. The geology, sociology, history, pop culture, employment, everything. Lincoln Rhyme was thinking how little he knew about the world that Geneva Settle lived in, Harlem. Oh, he'd read the stats, of course. The majority of the population were an equal mix of African-black, both long-time and recent immigrants, and black and non-black Hispanic, mostly Puerto Rican, Dominican, Salvadoran, and Mexican, followed by white and some Asian. There was poverty, and there were gangs and drugs and violence, largely centered around the projects, but much of the neighborhood was generally safe, far better than many parts of Brooklyn, the Bronx, or Newark. Harlem had more churches, mosques, community organizations, and concerned parents' groups than any other neighborhood in the city. The place had been a mecca for black civil rights and for black and Hispanic culture and art. It was now the center of a new movement for fiscal equality. There were dozens of economic redevelopment projects currently underway, and investors of all races and nationalities were speeding to sink money into Harlem, taking particular advantage of the hot real estate market. But these were New York Times facts, NYPD facts. They didn't help Rhyme one bit in his understanding of why a professional killer wanted to murder a teenage girl from this neighborhood. His search for Unsub 109 was severely hampered by this limitation. He ordered his phone to make a call, and the software obediently connected him to a number at the FBI's office downtown. Delray here. Fred, it's Lincoln. I need some help again. My friendly fella down in the district help you out? Yep, sure did. Maryland, too. Glad to hear it. Hold on. Let me shoo somebody on out of here. Rhyme had been to Del Rey's office several times. The tall, lanky, black agent's digs in the federal building were filled with books of literature and esoteric philosophy, as well as coat racks of the various clothes he'd wear while working undercover, though he didn't do much field work anymore. 
Ironically, it was on those costume racks that you'd find FBI Brooks Brothers suits and white shirts and striped ties. Del Rey's regular dress was, to put it kindly, bizarre. Jogging outfits and sweats with sports jackets, and he favored green, blue, and yellow for his suits. At least he avoided hats, which could make him look like a pimp out of a 70s black exploitation film. The agent returned to the phone, and Rhyme asked, How's the bomb thing going? Another anonymous call this morning about the Israeli consulate, just like last week. Only my snitches, even the golden boys, can't tell me one solid little thing. Pisses me off. Anyways, what else you got cooking? The case is taking us to Harlem. You work it much? I stroll through the place some, but I'm no encyclopedia. B.K. born and bred. B.K. Brooklyn. Originally the village of Brooklyn. Brought to us courtesy of the Dutch West India Company in the 1640s. First official city in the state of New York, if you care. Home of Walt Whitman. But you ain't spending a quarter to talk trivia. Can you get away and do a little scrounging on the streets? I'll fit you in, but I can't promise I'll be much help. Well, Fred, you've got one advantage over me, as far as blending in uptown. Right, right, right. My ass ain't sitting in any bright red wheelchair. Make that two advantages, replied Rhyme, whose complexion was as pale as the rookie Pulaski's blonde hair. Charles Singleton's other letters arrived from Geneva's. They hadn't been stored very well over the years and were faded and fragile. Mel Cooper carefully mounted them between two thin sheets of acrylic after chemically treating the creases to make sure the paper didn't crack. Silito walked over to Cooper. What do we got? The tech focused the optical scanner on the first letter, hit a button. The image appeared on several of the computer monitors throughout the room. My most darling Violet, I have but a moment to set down a few words to you in the heat and calm of this early Sunday morning. Our regiment, the 31st New York, has come such a long way since we were unseasoned recruits assembling on Hart's Island. Indeed, we now are engaged in the momentous task of pursuing General Robert E. Lee himself, whose army has been in retreat after its defeat at Petersburg, Virginia, on April 2nd. He has now taken a stand with his 30,000 troops in the heart of the Confederacy, and it has fallen to our regiment, among others, to hold the line to the west when he attempts to escape, which surely he must, for both General Grant and General Sherman are bearing down upon him with superior numbers. The moment now is the quiet before the storm, and we are assembled on a large farm. Barefoot slaves stand about watching us, wearing negro cottons. Some of them say nothing but regard us blankly. Others cheer mightily. Not long ago our commander rode up to us, dismounted and told of the battle plan for the day. He then spoke, from memory, words from Mr. Frederick Douglass, words that I recall to be these. Once let the black man get upon his person the letters U.S., an eagle on his buttons, a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pockets, and no one on earth can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship in the United States. He then saluted us and said it was his privilege to have served with us in this God-sanctioned campaign to reunite our nation. A hurrah went up from the 31st, the likes of which I have never heard. And now, darling, I hear drums in the distance and the crack of the four and eight-pounders 
signaling the beginning of battle. Should these be the last words I am able to impart to you from this side of the river of Jordan, know that I love you and our son beyond words telling. Hold fast to our farm. Keep to our fabrication of being caretakers of the land, not owners, and deflect all offers to sell. I wish the land to pass intact to our son and his issue. Professions and trades ebb and flow. The financial markets are fickle, but the earth is God's great constant, and our farm will ultimately bring to our family respectability in the eyes of those who do not respect us now. It will be our children's salvation, and that of the generations that will follow. Now, my dear, I must once again take up my rifle, and do as God has bid, to secure our freedom and preserve our sacred country. Yours in eternal love, Charles. April 9th, 1865, Appomattox, Virginia. Sachs looked up. Phew, that's a cliffhanger. Not really, Tom said. What do you mean? Well, we know they held the line. How? Because April 9th's the day the South surrendered. Not really concerned about History 101 here, Rhyme said. I want to know about this secret. That's in this one, Cooper said, scanning the second letter. He mounted it on the scanner. My dearest Violet, I miss you, my dear, and our young Joshua, too. I am heartened by the news that your sister has weathered well the illness following the birth of your nephew, and thankful to our Lord Jesus Christ that you were present to see her through this difficult time. However, I think it best that you remain in Harrisburg for the time being. These are critical times, and more perilous, I feel, than what transpired during the War of Secession. So much has happened in the month you have been away. How my life has changed from simple farmer and schoolteacher to my present situation. I am engaged in matters that are difficult and dangerous and, dare I say, vital for the sake of our people. Tonight, my colleagues and I meet again at Gallows Heights, which has taken on the aspects of a castle under siege. The days seem endless, the travel exhausting. My life consists of arduous hours and coming and going under cover of darkness, and avoiding, too, those who would do us harm, for they are many, and not just former rebels. Many in the North are hostile to our cause as well. I receive frequent threats, some veiled, some explicit. Another nightmare awakened me early this morning. I don't recall the images that plagued my sleep, but after I awoke, I could not return to my slumbers. I lay awake till dawn, thinking how difficult it is to bear this secret within me. I so desire to share it with the world, but I know I cannot. I have no doubt the consequences of its revelation would be tragic. Forgive my somber tone. I miss you and our son, and I am terribly weary. Tomorrow may see a rebirth of hope. I pray that such is the case. Yours in loving affection, Charles, May 3rd, 1867. Well, Rye mused, he talks about the secret, but what is it? 
Must have something to do with those meetings in Gallows Heights. Sake of our people. Civil rights or politics. He mentioned that in his first letter, too. What the hell is Gallows Heights? His eyes went to the tarot card of the hanged man, suspended from a gallows by his foot. I'll look it up, Cooper said, and went online. A moment later, he said, It was a neighborhood in 19th century Manhattan, Upper West Side, centered around Bloomingdale Road and 80th Street. Bloomingdale became the boulevard and then Broadway. He glanced up with a raised eyebrow. Not far from here. Gallows with an apostrophe? No apostrophe. At least in the hits I found. Anything else about it? Cooper looked over the Historical Society website. A couple of things. A map from 1872. He swung the monitor toward Rhyme, who looked it over, noting that the neighborhood encompassed a large area. There were some big estates owned by old-family New York magnates and financiers, as well as hundreds of smaller apartments and homes. Hey, look, Lincoln, Cooper said, touching part of the map near Central Park. That's your place. Where we are now, it was a swamp back then. Interesting, Rhyme muttered sarcastically. The only other reference is a Times story last month about the rededication of a new archive at the Sanford Foundation. That's the old mansion on 81st. Rhyme recalled a big Victorian building next to the Sanford Hotel, a gothic, spooky apartment that resembled the nearby Dakota where John Lennon had been killed. Cooper continued. The head of the foundation, William Ashbery, gave a speech at the ceremony. He mentioned how much the Upper West Side has changed in the years since it was known as Gallows Heights. But that's all, nothing specific. Too many unconnected dots, Rhyme reflected. It was then that Cooper's computer binged, signaling an incoming email. The tech read it and glanced at the team. Listen to this. It's about Colored's Weekly Illustrated. The curator of Booker T. Washington College down in Philly just sent me this. The library had the only complete collection of the magazine in the country and... Had? Rhyme snapped. Fucking had? Last week a fire destroyed the room where it was stored. What do the arson reports say? Sachs asked. Wasn't considered arson. It looks like a light bulb broke, ignited some papers. Nobody was hurt. Bullshit, it wasn't arson. Somebody started it. So, does the curator have any other suggestions where we can find... I was about to continue. Well, continue. The school has a policy of scanning everything in their archives and storing them in Adobe PDF files. Are we approaching good news, Mel, or are you just flirting? Cooper punched more buttons. He gestured toward the screen. Voila! July 23rd, 1868. Colored's Weekly Illustrated. You don't say. Well, read to us, Mel. First of all, did Mr. Singleton drown in the Hudson or not? Cooper typed, and a moment later shoved his glasses onto the bridge of his nose, leaned forward, and said, Here we go. The headline is, Shame, the account of a freedman's crime. Charles Singleton, a veteran of the war between the states, betrays the cause of our people in a notorious incident. Continuing with the text, he read, 
On Tuesday, July 14th, a warrant for the arrest of one Charles Singleton, a freedman who was a veteran of the War of Secession, was issued by the New York Criminal Court on charges that he feloniously stole a large sum of gold and other monies from the National Education Trust for Freedmen's Assistance on 23rd Street in Manhattan, New York. Mr. Singleton eluded a dragnet by officers throughout the city and was thought to have escaped possibly to Pennsylvania where his wife's sister and her family lived. However, early on the morning of Thursday the 16th, he was noticed by a police constable as he was making his way toward the Hudson River docks. The constable sounded the alarm and Mr. Singleton took flight. The police officer gave chase. The pursuit was soon joined by dozens of other law enforcers and Irish rag pickers and workers doing their civic duty to apprehend the felon and encouraged by the promise of five dollars in gold to stop the villain. The attempted route of escape was through the warren of disreputable shanties close by the river. At the 23rd Street Paint Works, Mr. Singleton stumbled. A mounted officer approached, and it appeared he would be ensnared. Yet he regained his footing, and rather than own up to his mischief, as a courageous man would do, continued his cowardly flight. For a time he evaded his pursuers, but his escape was merely temporary. A Negro tradesman on a porch saw the freedman and implored him to stop in the name of justice asserting that he had heard of Mr. Singleton's crime and recriminating him for bringing dishonor upon all colored people throughout the nation. The citizen, one Walker Lokes, thereupon flung a brick at Mr. Singleton with the intent of knocking him down. However, Mr. Singleton avoided the missile and, proclaiming his innocence, continued to flee. The freedman was strong of body from working in apple orchard and ran as fast as greased lightning, but Mr. Lokes informed the constabulary of the freedman's presence, and at the piers near 28th Street, near the tow-boat office, his path was confounded by another contingent of diligent police. There he paused, exhausted, clinging to the Swift Shore Express Company's sign. He was urged to surrender by the man who had led his pursuit for the past two days, Detective Captain William P. Sims, who leveled his pistol at the thief. Yet, either seeking a desperate means of escape, or convinced that his evil deeds had caught up with him and wishing to end his life, Mr. Singleton, by most accounts, hesitated for but a moment, then leapt into the river, calling out words that none could hear. Rhyme interrupted. That's as far as Geneva got before she was attacked. Forget the Civil War, Sachs. This is the cliffhanger. Keep going. He disappeared from view under the waves, and witnesses were sure he had perished. Three constables commandeered a skiff from a nearby dock and rowed along the piers to ascertain the Negro's fate. They at last found him, half-conscious from the fall, clutching a piece of driftwood to his breast, and, with a pathos that many suggested was calculated, calling for his wife and son. At least he survived, Sack said. Geneva would be glad about that. He was tended to by a surgeon, taken away and bound over for trial, which was held on Tuesday last. In court it was proven that he stole the unimaginable sum of greenbacks and gold coin worth thirty thousand dollars. That's what I was thinking, Rhymes said, that the motive here is missing loot. 
Value today? Cooper minimized the window containing the article about Charles Singleton and did a web search, jotting numbers on a pad. He looked up from his calculations. It'd be worth close to eight hundred thousand. Rhyme grunted. Unimaginable. All right, keep going. Cooper continued. A porter across the street from the Freedmen's Trust saw Mr. Singleton gain entry into the office by the back door and leave twenty minutes later carrying two large satchels. When the manager of the trust arrived soon after, summoned by the police, it was discovered that the trust's Exeter Strongbow safe had been broken open with a hammer and crowbar, identical to those owned by the defendant, which were later located in proximity to the building. Further, evidence was presented that Mr. Singleton had ingratiated himself at a number of meetings in the Gallows Heights neighborhood of the city with such luminaries as the Honorables Charles Sumner, Thaddeus Stevens, and Frederick Douglass, and his son Louis Douglass, on the pretense of assisting those noble men in the furtherance of the rights of our people before Congress. Ah, the meetings Charles referred to in his letter. They were about civil rights, and those must be the colleagues he mentioned. Pretty heavy hitters, sounds like. What else? His motive in assisting these famed personages, according to the able prosecutor, was not, however, to assist the cause of Negroes, but to gain knowledge of the trust and other repositories he might plunder. Was that the secret? Sachs wondered. At his trial, Mr. Singleton remained silent regarding these charges, except to make a general disclaimer and to say that he loved his wife and son. Captain Sims was able to recover most of the ill-gotten gains. It is speculated that the Negroes secreted the remaining several thousand in a hiding place and refused to divulge its whereabouts. None of it was ever found excepting a hundred dollars in gold coin discovered on Mr. Singleton's person when he was apprehended. There goes the buried treasure theory, Rhyme muttered. Too bad I liked it. The accused was convicted expeditiously. Upon sentencing, the judge exhorted the freedmen to return the rest of the purloined funds, whose location he nonetheless refused to disclose, clinging still to his claim of innocence, and asserting the coin found on his person had been placed in his belongings after his apprehension. Accordingly, the judge, in his wisdom, ordered that the felon's possessions be confiscated and sold to make such restitution as could be had, and the criminal himself was sentenced to five years' imprisonment. Cooper looked up. That's it. Why would somebody resort to murder just to keep the story under wraps? Sachs asked. Yep, the big question. Rhyme gazed at the ceiling. So what do we know about Charles? He was a teacher and a Civil War veteran. He owned and worked a farm upstate. He was arrested and convicted for theft. He had a secret that would have tragic consequences if it was known. He went to hush-hush meetings in Gallows Heights. He was involved in the Civil Rights Movement and hobnobbed with some of the big politicians and civil rights workers of the day. Rhyme wheeled close to the computer screen, looking over the article. He could see no connection between the events then and the Unsub 109 case. Solito's phone rang. He listened for a moment. His eyebrow lifted. Okay, thanks. He disconnected and looked at Rhyme. Bingo. 
What's bingo? Rhyme asked. Salito said, A canvas team in Little Italy, a half block from where they had the Columbus Day Fair, just found a discount store on Mulberry Street. The clerk remembered a middle-aged white guy who bought everything in the unsubs rate pack a few days ago. She remembered him because of the hat. He wore a hat? No, he bought a hat, a stocking cap. Only why she remembered him was because when he tried it on, he pulled it down over his face. She saw him in a security mirror. She thought he was going to rob her, but then he took it off and put it in the basket with everything else and just paid and left. The missing 5.95 item on the receipt, probably. Trying it on to make sure it would work as a mask. It's probably also what he rubbed his own prints off with. Does she know his name? No, but she can describe him pretty good. Sachs said, We'll do a composite and hit the streets. Grabbing her purse, she was at the door before she realized the big detective wasn't with her. She stopped, looked back. Lon, you coming? Silito didn't seem to hear. She repeated the question, and the detective blinked. He lowered his hand from his reddened cheek and grinned. Sorry. You bet. Let's go nail this bastard. This ends Disc 3, the twelfth card, Disc 4. African-American Museum Scene Rate Pack Tarot Card, Twelfth Card in Deck, The Hanged Man, meaning Spiritual Searching Smiley Face Bag, Too Generic to Trace Box Cutter, Trojan Condoms, Duct Tape, Jasmine Scent, Unknown Item Bought for five ninety-five, Probably a Stocking Cap Receipt, indicating store was a New York City discount variety store or drugstore. Most likely purchased in a store on Mulberry Street, Little Italy. Unsub identified by clerk. Fingerprints. Unsub wore latex or vinyl gloves. Prints on items in rate pack belonged to person with small hands. No IAFIS hits, possibly clerks. Trace. Cotton rope fibers, some with traces of human blood. Garrot. No manufacturer. Sent to CODIS. No DNA match in CODIS. Popcorn and cotton candy with traces of canine urine. Connection with carnival or street fair. Checking with traffic about recent permits. Officers presently canvassing street fairs per info from traffic. Confirm festival was in Little Italy. Weapons. Billy club or martial arts weapon. Pistol is a North American Arms twenty-two rimfire magnum, Black Widow, or Minimaster. Makes own bullets, bored out slugs filled with needles. No match in Ibis or drug fire. Motive. Uncertain. Rape was probably staged. True motive may have been to steal microfiche containing July 23, 1868 issue of Colored's Weekly Illustrated Magazine, and kill G. Settle because of her interest in an article for reasons unknown. Article was about her ancestor, Charles Singleton. See accompanying chart. Librarian victim reported that someone else wished to see article. Requesting librarian's phone records to verify this, no leads. Requesting information from employees as to other person wishing to see story, no leads. Searching for copy of article, several sources report man requested same article, no leads to identity. Most issues missing or destroyed, one located. See accompanying chart. Conclusion, 
G. Settle possibly still at risk. Profile of incident sent to VICAP and NCIC. Murder in Amarillo, Texas, five years ago. Similar M.O. Staged crime scene. Apparently ritual killing, but real motive unknown. Murder in Ohio, three years ago. Similar M.O. Staged crime scene. Apparently sexual assault, but real motive probably hired killing. Files missing. Profile of Unsub 109. White male. Six feet tall, 180 pounds. Average voice. Used cell phone to get close to victim. Wears three-year-old or older, size 11, bass walkers, light brown. Right foot slightly outturned. Additional jasmine scent. Dark pants. Ski mask. Dark. Will target innocents to help in killing victims and escaping. Most likely is a for-hire killer. Profile of person hiring unsub 109. No information at this time. Profile of Charles Singleton. Former slave, ancestor of G. Settle, married, one son, given orchard in New York State by master, worked as teacher as well, instrumental in early civil rights movement. Charles allegedly committed theft in 1868, the subject of the article in Stolen Microfiche. Reportedly had a secret that could bear on case, worried that tragedy would result if his secret was revealed. Attended meetings in Gallows Heights neighborhood of New York. Involved in some risky activities? The crime, as reported in Colored's Weekly Illustrated, Charles arrested by Detective William Sims for stealing large sum from Freedmen's Trust in New York. Broke into the trust's safe, witnesses saw him leave shortly after. His tools were found nearby. Most money was recovered. He was sentenced to five years in prison. No information about him after sentencing. Believed to have used his connections with early civil rights leaders to gain access to the trust. Charles's correspondence. Letter 1 to wife. Redraft riots in 1863. Great anti-black sentiment throughout New York State. Lynchings. Arson. Risk to property owned by blacks. Letter 2 to wife. Charles at Battle of Appomattox at end of Civil War. Letter 3, to wife, involved in civil rights movement, threatened for this work, troubled by his secret. Chapter 10 In the 1920s, the new Negro movement, later called the Harlem Renaissance, erupted in New York City. It involved an astonishing group of thinkers, artists, musicians, and mostly writers who approached their art by looking at black life not from the viewpoint of white America, but from their own perspective. This groundbreaking movement included men and women like the intellectuals Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois, writers like Zora Neale Hurston, Claude McKay, and County Cullen, painters like William H. Johnson and John T. Biggers, and, of course, the musicians who provided the timeless soundtrack to it all, people like Duke Ellington, Josephine Baker, W.C. Handy, U.B. Blake. In such a pantheon of brilliance, it was hard for any single artist's voice to stand out, but if anyone's did, it would perhaps be that of a poet and novelist, Langston Hughes, whose voice and message were typified by his simple words, What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or does it explode?
Many memorials to Hughes exist throughout the country, but certainly one of the biggest and most dynamic, and probably the one he'd have been most proud of, was an old red-brick four-story building in Harlem located near Lennox Terrace on 135th Street. Like all city schools, Langston Hughes High had its problems. It was continually overcrowded and underfunded, and struggled desperately to get and retain good teachers, and to keep students in class as well. It suffered from low graduation rates, violence in the halls, drugs, gangs, teen pregnancy, and truancy. Still, the school had produced graduates who'd gone on to become lawyers, successful businessmen and women, doctors, scientists, writers, dancers, and musicians, politicians, professors. It had winning varsity teams, dozens of scholastic societies, and arts clubs. But for Geneva Settle, Langston Hughes High was more than these stats. It was the hub of her salvation, an island of comfort. As she saw the dirty brick walls come into view now, the fear and anxiety that had swarmed around her since the terrible incident at the museum that morning diminished considerably. Detective Bell parked his car, and after he'd looked around for threats, they climbed out. He nodded toward a street corner and said to that young officer, Mr. Pulaski, You wait out here. Yes, sir. Geneva added to the detective, You can wait here, too, if you want. He chuckled. I'll just come hang out with you for a bit. You don't mind. Well, okay, I can see you do mind, but I think I'll come along anyway. He buttoned his jacket to hide his guns. Nobody will pay me any mind. He held up the social studies book. Not answering, Geneva grimaced, and they proceeded to the school. At the metal detector, the girl showed her ID, and Detective Bell subtly flashed his wallet and was led around the side of the device. It was just before fifth period, which started at 11.37, and the halls were crowded. Kids milling around, heading for the cafeteria, or out to the schoolyard, or onto the street for fast food. There was joking, dissing, flirting, making out. A fight or two, chaos reigned. It's my lunch period, she called over the din. I'll go to the cafeteria and study. It's this way. Three of her friends came up fast. Ramona, Chalette, Janet. They fell into step beside her. They were smart girls like her. Pleasant, never caused any trouble, on scholarship tracks. Yet, or maybe because of this, they weren't particularly tight. None of them really just hung out. They'd go home after class, practice Suzuki violin or piano, volunteer for literacy groups, or work on the spelling bee or Westinghouse science competitions, and, of course, study. Academics meant solitude. Part of Geneva actually envied the school's other cliques, like the gangster girls, the blinksters, the jock girls, and the Angela Davis activist sisters. But now these three were fluttering around her like best homegirls, huddling close, peppering her with questions. Did he touch you? You see his dick? Was he hard? Do you see the guy got capped? How close were you? They'd all heard, from kids who came in late, or kids cutting class and watching TV. Even though the stories hadn't mentioned Geneva by name, everybody knew she was at the center of the incident, thanks probably to Quiche. Morella, a track star and fellow junior, walked by, saying, "'What up, girlfriend? You down?' "'Yeah, I'm cool.' The tall classmate squinted at Detective Bell and asked her, 
Why is a cop carrying your book, Jan? Ask him. The policeman laughed uneasily. Fronting, you're a teacher. Hey, that's deaf. Keisha Scott, clustered with her sister and some of her blinks to homegirls, gave Geneva a theatrical double-take. Girl, you whack, bitch, she shouted. Somebody give you a pass, you take a pass. Could have kicked back, washed the soaps. Grinned, nodded at the lunchroom. Catch you later. Some of the students weren't as kind. Halfway to the lunchroom, she heard a boy's voice. Yo, yo, it's the Fox News bitch with the cracker over there. She's still alive? Thought somebody clipped that hoe. Fuck, that Debbie be too skinny to hit with anything but a breakdown. Raucous laughter erupted. Detective Bell whirled around, but the young men who'd called out those words disappeared in a sea of sweats and sports jerseys, baggy jeans and cargo pants and bare heads hats being forbidden in the halls of Langston Hughes. It's okay, Geneva said, her jaw set, looking down. Some of them, they don't like it when you take school seriously, you know, raising the curve. She'd been student of the month a number of times and had a perfect attendance award for both of her prior years here. She was regularly on the principal's honor roll with her 98% average and had been inducted into the National Honor Society at the formal ceremony last spring. Doesn't matter. Even the vicious insult of Blondie or Debbie, a black girl aspiring to be white, didn't get to her, since, to some extent, it was true. At the lunchroom door, a large, attractive black woman in a purple dress with a Board of Education ID around her neck came up to Mr. Bell. She identified herself as Mrs. Barton, a counselor. She'd heard about the incident and wanted to know if Geneva was all right and if she wanted to talk with somebody in her department about it. Oh, man, a counselor, the girl thought, her spirits dipping. Don't need this shit now. No, she said, I'm fine. You sure? We could do a session this afternoon. Really, I'm down. It's cool. I should call your parents. They're away. You're not alone, are you? The woman frowned. I'm staying with my uncle. And we're looking out for her, the detective said. Geneva noticed the woman didn't even ask to see his ID. It was so obvious he was a cop. When will they be back, your folks? They're on their way. They were overseas. You didn't really need to come to school today. I've got two tests. I don't want to miss them. The woman gave a faint laugh and said to Mr. Bell, I never took school as seriously as this. Probably should have. A glance at the girl. Are you sure you don't want to go home? I spent a lot of time studying for those tests, she muttered. I really want to take them. All right, but after that I think you should go home and stay there for a few days. We'll get your assignments to you. Mrs. Barton stormed off to break up a pushing match between two boys. When she was gone, the officer asked, You have a problem with her? It's just counselors. They're always in your business, you know. He looked like, no, he didn't know, but why should he? This wasn't his world. They started up the hall toward the cafeteria. As they entered the noisy place, she nodded toward the short alcove leading to the girls' restroom. Is it okay if I go in there? Sure, just hold on a minute. He motioned to a woman teacher and whispered something to her, explaining the situation Geneva assumed. The woman nodded and stepped inside the bathroom. Came out a moment later. It's empty. Mr. Bell stationed himself outside the door. 
I'll make sure only students get in. Geneva stepped inside, thankful for the moment or two of peace, to be away from the staring eyes, away from the edginess of knowing that somebody wanted to hurt her. Earlier she'd been angry, earlier she'd been defiant, but now the reality was starting to lap at her heart and left her scared and confused. She came out of the stall and washed her hands and face. Another girl had come in and was putting on her makeup. A senior, Geneva believed. Tall, fine-looking, with her eyebrows artistically plucked and bangs hot-combed to perfection. The girl gave her the up and down, not because of the news story, though. She was taking inventory. You saw it all the time here, every minute of the day, checking out the competition. What was a girl wearing? How many piercings? Real gold or plate? Too much glitter? Were her braids fat or coming loose? Was she draped or wearing a simple hoop or two? Are those real extensions or fake? Was she covering up being pregnant? Geneva, who spent her money on books, not clothes and makeup, always came in low in the ratings. Not that what God had created helped much. She had to take a deep breath to fill her bra which she usually didn't even bother to wear. She was that egg-yoke titty bitch to the Delano Project girls, and she'd been called him or he dozens of times in the last year. It hurt the worst when somebody'd really mistake her for a boy, not when they were dissing. Then there was her hair, dense and wiry as steel wool. She didn't have the time to train locks or tie rows. Braids and extensions took forever, and even though Quiche would do them for free, they actually made her look younger, like she was a little kid dressed up by her mom's. There she go, there she go, the skinny little boy girl, get her down. The senior next to her at the wash basins turned back to the mirror. She was pretty and broad, her sexy bra straps and thong line evident, hair in a long, straightened sweep, her smooth cheeks faintly maroon. Her shoes were red as candy apples. She was everything that Geneva said it was not. It was then that the door swung open, and Geneva's heart froze. In walked Johnette Monroe, another senior. Not much taller than Geneva, though broader, bustier, with solid shoulders and cut muscles, tats on both arms, a long mocha-shaded face, and eyes that were ice-cold, they now squinted in recognition at Geneva, who looked away immediately. Jeanette was trouble, a gangster girl. Rumors where she was dealing could get you anything you wanted, meth, crack, smack. And if you didn't come up with the Benjamins, she'd wail on you herself, or on your best friend, or even your mom's, till you stood up to the debt. Twice already this year she'd been dragged off by the cops, even kicked one in the balls. Geneva now kept her eyes down, thinking Detective Bell'd have no way of knowing how dangerous Jeanette was when he let her inside. Her hands and face still wet, Geneva started for the door. "'Yo, yo, girl,' Jeanette said to her, looking her up and down with a cold glance. "'Yeah, you, Martha Stewart. Don't you be going nowhere.' "'I shut up.' She glanced at the other girl, the one with the purple cheeks. "'And you get the fuck out.' The senior had fifty pounds and three inches of height on Johnette, but the girl stopped preening and slowly gathered up her makeup. She tried to save a bit of dignity, saying, Don't go laying no attitude on me, girl. Johnette didn't say a word. She took one step forward. The girl snatched up her purse and fled through the doorway. 
A lip liner fell to the floor. Jeanette picked it up and slipped the tube into her pocket. Geneva started to leave again, but Jeanette held her hand up and motioned her to the back of the restroom. When Geneva stood, frozen, Jeanette grabbed her by the arm and shoved open the doors of the stalls to make sure they were alone. "'What do you want?' Geneva whispered, both defiant and terrified. Jeanette snapped, "'Shut your mouth!' "'Shit,' she thought, furious. Mr. Ryan was right. That terrible man from the library was still after her. He'd somehow found out her school and hired Jeanette to finish the job. Why the hell had she come to school today? Scream, Geneva told herself. And she did, or started to. Jeanette could see it coming, and in a flash was behind her, clamping her hand over Geneva's mouth, stifling the sound. "'Quiet!' Her other hand gripped the girl around the waist and pulled her into the far corner of the room. Geneva grabbed her hand and arm and tugged, but she was no match for Jeanette. She stared at the girl's bleeding cross tat on her forearm and whimpered, Please! Jeanette rummaged for something in her purse or pocket. What? Geneva wondered in a panic. There was a flash of metal. A knife? A gun? What did they have metal detectors for if it was so goddamn easy to get a weapon into the school? Geneva squealed, twisting violently. Then the gang girl's hand swung forward. No, no, and Geneva found herself looking at a silver police department badge. You going to be quiet, girl? Jeanette asked, exasperated. I... Quiet? A nod. Jeanette said, I don't want anybody outside to hear anything. Now you down? Geneva nodded again, and Jeanette released her. You're a cop, yeah. Geneva scrabbled away and pressed against the wall, breathing deeply, as Jeanette walked to the door, opened it a crack. She whispered something, and Detective Bell stepped inside and locked the door. "'So you two met?' he said. "'Sort of,' Geneva said. "'She really is a cop?' the detective explained. "'All the schools have undercover officers. They're usually women, pretending to be juniors or seniors. Or, what did you say, fronting?' "'Why didn't you just tell me?' Geneva snapped. Jeanette glanced at the stalls. I didn't know we were alone. Sorry to be whack, but I couldn't say anything that'd blow my cover. The policewoman looked Geneva over, shook her head. Shame this had to happen to you. You're one of the good ones. I never spent any worry on you. A cop, Geneva whispered in disbelief. Jeanette laughed in a high, girlish voice. I'm a man, yep. You're so down, Geneva said. I never guessed. Mr. Bell said, You remember when they busted those seniors who smuggled some guns into the school a few weeks ago? Geneva nodded. A pipe bomb, too, or something. It was going to be another Columbine right here, the man said in his lazy drawl. Johnette's the one heard about it and stopped the whole thing. Had to keep my cover so I couldn't take him down myself, she said, as if she regretted not being able to bust up the kids personally. Now, as long as you're going to be in school, which I think is pretty whack, but that's a different story, long as you're here, I'll keep an eye on you. You see, anything makes you uneasy, give me a sign. Gang sign? Jeanette laughed. You'd be a claimer in any gang, Jen. Nothing personal. You go throwing me a flag, I think everybody'd know something was up. Better you just scratch your ear, how's that? Sure. Then I'll come over and mess you up some. Give you some shit. Get you out of wherever you are. You cool with that? I won't hurt you. Maybe just push you around a little. Sure, good. Listen, thanks for doing this. And I won't say anything about you. I knew that before I told you, Johnette said. Then she looked at the officer. You want to do it now? You bet. 
Then the pleasant, soft-spoken policeman got a dark look on his face and shouted, "'What the hell are you doing in here?' Screeching, "'Get your motherfucking hands off me, asshole!' Johnette had slipped into character again. The detective took her by the arm and shoved her out the door. She stumbled into the wall. "'Fuck you! I'm gonna sue your fucking ass for abuse or some shit!' The girl rubbed her arm. "'You can't touch me! That a crime, motherfucker!' She stormed off down the hall. After a pause, Detective Bell and Geneva stepped into the cafeteria proper. "'Good actress,' Geneva whispered. "'One of the best,' the policeman said. "'She kind of blew your cover.' He handed her back the social studies book, grinned. "'Wasn't exactly working.' Geneva sat down at a table in the corner and pulled a language arts book out of her knapsack. Detective Bell asked, "'Aren't you eating?' No. Did your uncle give you your lunch money? I'm not really hungry. Forgot, didn't he? All respect, he's not a man who's ever been a father. I can tell. I'll rustle you up something. No, really. Truth is, I'm hungrier than a farmer at sundown, and I haven't had any high school turkey tetrazzini in years. Gonna get me some of that. No trouble to get a second plate. You like milk? She debated. Sure. I'll pay you back. We'll put it on the city. He stepped into the line. Geneva had just turned back to her textbook when she saw a boy look her way and wave. She glanced behind her to see whom he was gesturing at. There was no one else. She gave a faint gasp, realizing that he was indicating her. Kevin Cheney was pushing away from the table where he and his homies sat and started loping toward her. Oh, my God! Was he really coming this way? Kevin, a Will Smith look-alike, perfect lips, perfecter body. The boy who could make a basketball defy gravity could move like he was a breakdancer competing in a B-Boy Summit show. Kevin was a cold institution at all the jams. In line, Detective Bell stiffened and started forward, but Geneva shook her head that everything was fine, which it was, better than fine, totally deaf. Kevin was destined for Connecticut or Duke on scholarship. Maybe an athletic one. He'd been captain of the team that won last year's PSAL basketball championship. But he could make it on grades, too. He didn't have the same love of books and school that Geneva did, maybe, but he was still in the top five percent of the class. They knew each other casually. They shared math class this semester and would also find themselves together in the hall or in the schoolyard from time to time. Coincidentally... Geneva told herself. But okay, fact was that she usually gravitated to where he was standing or sitting. Most of the damn kids ignored or dissed her. Kevin, though, actually said hi from time to time. He'd ask her a question about a math or history assignment, or just pause and talk for a few minutes. He wasn't asking her out, of course, that had never happened, but he treated her like a human being. He'd even walked her home from Langston Hughes one day last spring. A beautiful, clear day she could still picture as if she had a DVD of it. April 21st. Normally Kevin would hang with the svelte model wannabes or the brash girls, the blinksters. He even flirted with Lakeisha some, which infuriated Geneva, who endured the raging jealousy with a gritty, carefree smile. So what was he about now? Yo, girl, you down? he asked, frowning and dropping into a battered chrome chair next to her, stretching out his long legs. Yeah, she swallowed, tongue-tied. Her mind was blank. 
He said, I heard about what happened. Man, that was some mad shit. Somebody trying to yoke and choke you. I was fretting. Yeah? Word. It was just weird. Long as you're okay, that's cool, then. She felt a wave of heat wash over her face. Kevin was actually saying this to her. Why don't you just roll on back at home? He asked. What you doing here? Language arts test. Then our math test. He laughed. Damn. You down for school after all that shit? Yeah, can't miss those tests. And you cool with math? It was just calc, no big deal. Yeah, I've got it covered. You know, nothing too heavy. Straight up. Anyway, just wanted to say, a lot of people around here give you shit, I know that, and you take it quiet. But they wouldn't have gone and came in today the way you did. All rolled together, they ain't worth half of you. You got spine, girl. Breathless from the compliment, Geneva just looked down and shrugged. So now I see what you really about. You and me, girl, we're gonna hang more. But you're never around. Just, you know, school and shit. Watch it, she warned herself. You don't have to talk his talk. Kevin joked. Nah, girl, that ain't it. I know it's what. You dealing crank over in BK. I... Nearly an ain't, she refused to let it escape. She gave him a self-conscious smile, looked down at the scuffed floor. I don't deal in Brooklyn, only Queens. They got more Benjamins, you know. Lame, lame, lame girl. Oh, you are pathetic. Her palms bled sweat. But Kevin laughed hard. Then he shook his head. Nah, I know why I got confused. Must have been your mom selling crank in BK. This seemed like an insult, but it was actually an invitation. Kevin was asking her to play the dozens. That's how the old folks referred to it. Now you called it snapping, trading snaps, insults. Part of a long tradition of black poetry and storytelling contests, snapping was verbal combat, trading barbs. Serious snappers would perform on stage, though most snapping took place in living rooms and schoolyards and pizza parlors and bars and clubs and on front steps, and was about as sad as what Kevin had just offered as his initial volley, like, Yo mama so stupid she asked for price checks at the dollar store. Yo sister so ugly she couldn't get laid if she was a brick. But today, here, the point had nothing to do with being witty, because playing the dozens was traditionally men against men or women against women. When a male offered to play with a female, it meant only one thing, flirt. Geneva, thinking, how weird is this? It took getting attacked to make people respect her. Her father always said that the best can come out of the worst. Well, go ahead, girl, play back. The game was ridiculously juvenile, silly, but she knew how to snap. She and Keish and Keish's sister'd go on for an hour straight. Yo mama so fat, her blood type is ragu. Yo Chevy so old, they stole a club and left the car. But her heart beating fiercely, Geneva now simply grinned and sweated silently. She tried desperately to think of something to say. But this was Kevin Cheney himself. Even if she could work up the courage to fire off a snap about his mother, her mind was frozen. She looked at her watch, then down at her language arts book. Sweet Jesus, you whack, girl, she raged at herself. Say something. But not a single syllable trickled from her mouth. 
She knew Kevin was about to give her that look she knew so well that I ain't got time to waste on whack bitches look and walk off. But no, it seemed he thought that she just wasn't in the mood to play, probably still freaked from the morning's events. And that was all right with him. He just said, I'm serious, Jen. You're about more than just DJs and braids and bling. What it is, you're smart. Nice to talk with somebody smart. My boys, he nodded toward his posse's table, they're not exactly rocket scientists, you know what I'm saying? A flash in her mind. Go for it, girl. Yeah, she said. Some of them are so dumb if they spoke their minds they'd be speechless. Deaf, girl, straight up. Laughing, he tapped his fist to hers, and an electric jolt shot through her body. She struggled not to grin. It was way bad form to smile at your own snap. Then, through the exhilaration of the moment, she was thinking how right he was. How rarely it happens just talking with somebody smart, somebody who could listen, somebody who cared what you had to say. Kevin lifted an eyebrow at Detective Bell, who was paying for the food, and said, I know that dude fronting he's a teacher is five o. She whispered, Man does sort of have cop written on his forehead. That's word, Kevin said, laughing. I know he's stepping up for you and all, and that's cool, but I just want to say I'm a watch your back, too. And my boys, we see anything whack, we'll let him know. She was touched by this. But then troubled. What if Kevin or one of his friends got hurt by that terrible man from the library? She was still sick with sorrow that Dr. Barry had been killed because of her, that the woman on the sidewalk had been wounded. She had a horrible premonition. Kevin laid out in the Williams' funeral home parlor like so many other Harlem boys, shot down on the street. You don't have to do that, she said, unsmiling. I know I don't, he said. I want to. Nobody's going to hurt you. That's word. Okay, I'm going to hang with my boys now. Catch you later? For math class? Heart thudding, she stammered, sure. He tapped her fist again and walked off. Watching him, she felt feverish. Hands shaking at the exchange. Please, she thought, don't let anything happen to him. Miss? She looked up, blinked. Detective Bell was setting down a tray. The food smelled so fine. She was even hungrier than she'd thought. She stared at the steaming plate. You know him? The policeman asked. Yeah, he's down. We're in class together. Known him for years. You look a little addled, miss. Well, I don't know. Maybe I am, yeah. But it doesn't have anything to do with what happened at the museum, right? He asked with a smile. She looked away, feeling heat across her face. Now, the detective said, setting the steaming plate in front of her. Chow down. Nothing like turkey tetrazzini to soothe a troubled soul. You know, I might just ask him for the recipe. Chapter 11 These are do just fine. Thompson Boyd looked down at his purchases in the basket, then started for the checkout counter. He just loved hardware stores. He wondered why that might be. Maybe because his father used to take him every Saturday to an Ace Hardware outside of Amarillo to stock up on what the man needed for his workshop in the shed outside their trailer. Or maybe it was because in most hardware stores, like here, all the tools were clean and organized. 
The paint and glues and tapes were all ordered logically and easy to find. Everything arranged by the book. Thompson liked the smell, too, sort of a pungent fertilizer-oil-solvent smell that was impossible to describe, but one that everyone who'd ever been in an old hardware store would recognize instantly. The killer was pretty handy. This was something he'd picked up from his dad, who, even though he spent all day with tools, working on oil pipelines, derricks, and the bobbing dinosaur-head pumps, would still spend lots of time patiently teaching his son how to work with and respect tools, how to measure, how to draw plans. Thompson spent hours learning how to fix what was broken and how to turn wood and metal and plastic into things that hadn't existed. Together they'd work on the truck or the trailer, fix the fence, make furniture, build a present for his mom or aunt, a rolling pin or cigarette box or butcher block table. Big or small, his father taught, you put the same amount of skill into what you're doing, son. One's not better or harder than the other. It's only a question of where you put the decimal point. His father was a good teacher, and he was proud of what his son built. When Hart Boyd died, he had with him a shoeshine kit the boy had made and a wooden keychain in the shape of an Indian head with the wood-burned letters DAD on it. It was fortunate, as it turned out, that Thompson learned these skills because that's what the business of death is all about, mechanics and chemistry, no different from carpentry or painting or car repair, where you put the decimal point. Standing at the checkout stand, he paid, cash, of course, and thanked the clerk. He took the shopping bag in his gloved hands. He started out the door, paused, and looked at a small electric lawnmower, green and yellow. It was perfectly clean, polished, an emerald jewel of a device. It had a curious appeal to him. Why, he wondered. Well, since he'd been thinking of his father, it occurred to him that the machine reminded him of times he'd mow the tiny yard behind his parents' trailer, Sunday morning, then go inside to watch the game with his dad while his mother baked. He remembered the sweet smell of the leaded gas exhaust, remembered the gunshot-sounding crack when the blade hit a stone and flung it into the air, the numbness in his hands from the vibration of the grips. Numb the way you'd feel as you lay dying from a sidewinder snake bite, he assumed. He realized that the clerk was speaking to him. What? Thompson asked. Make you a good deal, the clerk said, nodding at the mower. No, thanks. Stepping outside, he wondered why he'd spaced out. What had so appealed to him about the mower, why he wanted it so much? Then he had the troubling idea that it wasn't the family memory at all. Maybe it was because the machine was really a small guillotine, a very efficient way to kill. Maybe that was it. Didn't like that thought, but there it was. Numb. Whistling faintly, a song from his youth, Thompson started up the street, carrying the shopping bag in one hand and, in the other, his briefcase containing his gun and belly club and a few other tools of the trade. He continued up the street into Little Italy, where the crews were cleaning up after the street fair yesterday. 
He grew cautious, observing several police cars. Two officers were talking to a Korean fruit stand owner and his wife. He wondered what that was about. Then he continued on to a payphone. He checked his voicemail once more, but there were no messages yet about Geneva's whereabouts. That wasn't a concern. His contact knew Harlem pretty good, and it'd only be a matter of time until Thompson found out where the girl went to school and where she lived. Besides, he could use the free time. He had another job, one that he'd been planning for even longer than Geneva Settle's death, and one that was just as important as that job. More important, really. And funny, now that he thought about it, this one also involved children. Yeah, Jack said into his cell phone. Ralph, sub dog. Jack's wondered if the skinny little pharaoh was leaning against something at the moment. You get the word from our friend? Meaning the character reference, Delisle Marshall. Yeah. And the graffiti king's cool? Jack's asked. Yeah. Good. So where are we on all this? Okay, I found what you want, man. It's don't say anything. Cell phones were the devil's own invention when it came to incriminating evidence. He gave the man an intersection on 116th Street. Ten minutes. Jacks disconnected and started up the street, as two ladies in their long overcoats wearing elaborate church hats and clutching well-worn Bibles detoured out of his way. He ignored their uneasy looks. Smoking... Walking steady with his gunshot, not gangster limp, Jacks inhaled the air high on being home, Harlem. Looking around him at stores, restaurants, and street vendors, you could buy anything here. West African woven cloth, kente and malinky, and Egyptian anks, bolga baskets, masks and banners, and framed pictures of silhouetted men and women on African National Congress black, green, and yellow. Posters, too. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., Tina, Tupac, Beyoncé, Chris Rock, Shaq, and dozens of pictures of Jam Master Jay, the brilliant and generous vinyl-spinning rapper with Run DMC, gunned down by some asshole in his Queens recording studio a few years back. Jax was hit left and right by memories. He glanced at another corner. Well, look at that. Now a fast food place, it had been the site of Jax's first crime, committed when he was fifteen. The crime that had launched him on the path to becoming righteously notorious. Because what he racked wasn't liquor or cigarettes or guns or cash, but a case of fat Krylon from a hardware store, which he went on to use up over the next twenty-four hours, compounding the larceny with trespass and criminal property damage by spray-painting the graffitied bubble letters Jack's 157 throughout Manhattan and the Bronx. Over the next few years, Jack's bombed that tag of his on thousands of surfaces, overpasses, bridges, viaducts, walls, billboards, stores, city buses, private buses, office buildings. He tagged Rockefeller Center right beside that gold statue before getting tackled by two massive security bulls who laid into him hard with mace and nightsticks. If young Alonzo Jackson found himself with five minutes of privacy and a flat surface, Jack's 157 appeared. Struggling to get through high school, the son of divorced parents, bored to death with normal jobs, steady in trouble, 
he found comfort as a writer. Graffiti guerrillas were writers, not artists, what Keith Haring, the Soho galleries, and Claimer ad agencies told everybody. He ran with some local blood posses for a time, but he changed his mind one day when he was hanging with his set on 140th, and the Trey Sevens drove by, and pop, 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 Jimmy Stone, standing right next to him, went down with two holes in the temple, dead before he hit the ground, all on account of a small bag of rock, all on account of no reason at all. Fuck that. Jacks went out on his own, less money, but a hell of a lot safer, despite spraying his tag on places like the Verrazano Bridge and a moving A-train car, which was one fat story that even brothers in prison had heard of. Alonzo Jackson, unofficially but permanently renamed Jax, dove into his craft. He started out simply bombing his tag throughout the city. But he learned early that if that's all you do, even if you lay it in every borough of the city, you're nothing but a lame toy, and graffiti kings wouldn't give you the time of day. So, skipping school, working in fast-food restaurants during the day to pay for paint, or racking what he could steal, Jax moved on to throw-ups. Tags written fast, but a lot bigger than bombing. He became a master of the top to bottom, doing the entire vertical height of a subway car. The A-train, supposedly the longest route through town, was his personal favorite. Thousands of visitors would travel from Kennedy Airport into the city on a train that didn't say welcome to the Big Apple. It offered the mysterious message, Jacks 157. By the time Jacks was 21... He'd done two total end-to-ends, covering the entire side of a subway car with his graffiti, and had come close to doing a whole train, every graffiti king's dream. He did his share of pieces, too. Jax had tried to describe what a graffiti masterpiece was, but all he could come up with was that a piece was something more, something breathtaking a work that a cluckhead crack addict sitting in a gutter and a Wall Street trader on New Jersey Transit could both look at and think, man, that is so fucking cool. Those were the days, Jax reflected. He was a graffiti king in the middle of the most powerful black cultural movement since the Harlem Renaissance. Hip-hop. Sure, the Renaissance must have been deaf, but to Jacks it was a smart person's thing. It came from the head. Hip-hop burst from the soul and from the heart. It wasn't born in colleges and writers' lofts. It came right from the fucking streets, from the angry and striving and despairing kids who had impossibly hard lives and broken homes, who walked on sidewalks littered with cookie vials, discarded by the crackheads and dotted with brown, dried blood. It was the raw shout from people who had to shout to be heard. Hip-hop's four legs delivered everything. Music and DJing, poetry and MC rapping, dance and the b-boys breakdancing, and art in Jax's own contribution, graffiti. In fact, here on 116th Street he paused and looked at the place where the Woolworths Five and Dime had stood. The store hadn't survived the chaos after the famous blackout of 1977, but what had sprouted in its place was a righteous miracle, the number one hip-hop club in the nation, Harlem World. Three floors of every kind of music you could imagine, radical, addictive, electrifying. 
B-boys spinning like tops, writhing like stormy waves. DJs spinning vinyl for the packed dance floors and MCs making love to their microphones and filling the room with their raw don't-fuck-with-me poems pounding in time to the rhythm of a real heart. Harlem World was where the throwdowns started, the battles of the rappers. Jax had been lucky enough to see what was considered the most famous of all time, the Cold Crush Brothers and the Fantastic Five. Harlem World was long gone, of course. Also gone, scrubbed or worn away or painted over, were the thousands of Jax's tags and pieces, along with those by the other graffiti legends of the early hip-hop era, Julio and Cool and Taki, the kings of graffiti. Or there were those lamenting the demise of hip-hop, which had become B.E.T., Multimillionaire rappers and chrome Humvees, bad boys too, big business, suburban white kids, iPods, and MP3 downloads and satellite radio. It was, well, case in point. Jax was watching a double-decker tour bus ease to the curb nearby. On the side was the sign, Rap Hip-Hop Tours See the Real Harlem. The passengers were a mix of black and white and Asian tourists. He heard snatches of the driver's rehearsed spiel and the promise that they'd soon be stopping for lunch at an authentic soul food restaurant. But Jax didn't agree with the claimers bitching that the old days were gone. The heart of uptown remained pure. Nothing could ever touch it. Take the Cotton Club, he reflected, that 1920s institution of jazz and swing and stride piano. Everybody thought it was the real Harlem, right? How many people knew that it was for white-only audiences? Even the famed Harlem resident W.C. Handy, one of the greatest American composers of all time, was turned away at the door while his own music was playing inside. Well, guess what? The Cotton Club was fucking gone. Harlem wasn't and it never would be. The Renaissance was done, and hip-hop had changed, but percolating right now in the streets around him was some brand new movement. Jax wondered what exactly this one would be, and if he'd even be around to see it. If he didn't handle this thing with Geneva settled right, he'd be dead or back in prison within twenty-four hours. Enjoy your soul, food, he thought to the tourists as the bus pulled away from the curb. Continuing up the street for a few blocks, Jax finally found Ralph, who was, sure enough, leaning against a boarded-up building. Dog, Jax said. Sup? Jax kept on walking. Where we going? Ralph asked, speeding up to keep pace beside the large man. Nice day for a walk. It cold out. Walking will warm you up. They kept going for a time, Jacks ignoring whatever the fuck Ralph was whining about. He stopped at Papaya King and bought four dogs and two fruit drinks, without asking Ralph if he was hungry or a vegetarian, or puked when he drank mango juice. He paid and walked out onto the street again, handing the skinny man his lunch. Don't eat it here, come on. Jacks looked up and down the street, nobody was following. He started off again, moving fast. Ralph followed. We walking because you don't trust me? Yeah. So why you ain't trust me all of a sudden? Because you had time to dime me out since I saw you last. What exactly is a mystery here? Nice day for a walk. 
was Ralph's answer. He snuck a bite of hot dog. They continued for a half-block to a street that seemed deserted, and the pair turned south. Jack stopped. Ralph did, too, and leaned against a wrought-iron fence in front of a brownstone. Jacks ate his hot dogs and sipped the mango juice. Ralph wolfed down his own lunch. Eating, drinking, just two workers on their meal break from a construction job or window washing. Nothing suspicious about this. That place, shit, they make good dogs, Ralph said. Jacks finished the food, wiped his hands on his jacket, and patted down Ralph's T-shirt and jeans. No wires. Let's get to it. What did you find? The settle girl, okay? She going to Langston Hughes, you know it? The high school. Sure, I know it. She there now. I don't know. You ask where, not when. Only I hear something else from my boys in the hood. The hood. They be saying somebody got her back. Staying on her steady. Who? Jax asked. Cops? Wondering why he even bothered. Of course it'd be them. Seemed to be. Jax finished his fruit juice. And the other thing? Ralph frowned. That I asked for. Oh. The pharaoh looked around, then pulled a paper bag from his pocket and slipped it into Jax's hand. He could feel the gun was an automatic and that it was small. Good. Like he asked. Loose bullets clicked in the bottom of the sack. So, Ralph said cautiously, so, Jax pulled some Benjamins from his pocket and handed them to Ralph and then leaned close to the man. He smelled malt and onion and mango. Now listen up. Our business is done with. If I hear you told anybody about this or even mention my name, I will find you and cap your fucked up ass. You can ask Delisle and he will tell you I am one cold bad person to cross. You know what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Ralph whispered to his mango juice. Now get the fuck out of here. No, go that way. And don't look back. Then Jax was moving in the opposite direction, back to 116th Street, losing himself in the crowds of shoppers. Head down, moving fast, despite the limp, but not so fast as to attract attention. Up the street another tour bus squealed to a stop in front of the site of the long-dead Harlem world, and some anemic rap dribbled from a speaker inside the gaudy vehicle. But at the moment, the blood-painting king of graffiti wasn't reflecting on Harlem, hip-hop, or his criminal past. He had his gun. He knew where the girl was. The only thing he was thinking about now was how long it would take him to get to Langston Hughes High. Chapter 12 The petite Asian woman eyed Sachs cautiously. The uneasiness was no wonder, the detective supposed, considering that she was surrounded by a half-dozen officers who were twice her size, and that another dozen waited on the sidewalk outside her store. "'Good morning,' Sachs said. "'This man we're looking for?' It's very important we find him. He may have committed some serious crimes. She was speaking a bit more slowly than she supposed was politically correct, which was, it turned out, a tidy faux pas. I understand that, the woman said in perfect English, with a French accent, no less. 
I told those other officers everything I could think of. I was pretty scared, with him trying the stocking cap on, you understand, pulling it down like it was a mask. Scary. I'm sure it was, Sack said, picking up her verbal pace a bit. So you mind if we take your fingerprints? This was to verify that they were her prints on the receipt and merchandise found at the museum library scene. The woman agreed, and a portable analyzer verified that they were hers. Sachs then asked, You're sure you don't have any idea who he is or where he lives? None. He's only been in here once or twice, maybe more, but he's the sort of person you never seem to notice. Average. Didn't smile, didn't frown, didn't say anything. Totally average. Not a bad look for a killer, Sachs reflected. What about your other employees? I asked them all. None of them remember him. Sachs opened the suitcase, replaced the fingerprint analyzer, and pulled out a Toshiba computer. In a minute she'd booted it up and loaded the electronic facial identification technique software. This was a computerized version of the old identikit, used to recreate images of suspects' faces. The manual system used pre-printed cards of human features and hair, which officers combined and showed to witnesses to create a likeness of a suspect. EFIT used software to do the same, producing a nearly photographic image. Within five minutes, Sachs had a composite picture of a jowly, clean-shaven white man with trim, light brown hair in his forties. He looked like any one of a million middle-aged businessmen or contractors or store clerks you'd find in the metro area. Average. Do you remember what he wore? There's a companion program to EFIT which will dress the suspect's image in various outfits, like mounting clothes on paper dolls. But the woman couldn't recall anything other than a dark raincoat. She added, Oh, one thing, I think he had a southern accent. Sachs nodded and jotted this into her notebook. She then hooked up a small laser printer and soon had two dozen five-by-seven-inch copies of Unsub 109's image, with a short description of his height, weight, and the fact he might be wearing a raincoat and had an accent. She added the warning that he targeted innocence. These she handed to Bo Howman, the grizzled, crew-cut former drill instructor who was now head of the emergency services unit, which was New York's tactical group. He in turn distributed the pictures to his officers and the uniformed patrolmen who were here with the team. Howman divided the law enforcers up, mixing patrol with ESU, which had heavier firepower, and ordered them to start canvassing the neighborhood. The dozen officers dispersed. NYPD, the constabulary of the city of Cool, put their tactical teams not in army-style armored personnel carriers, but in off-the-shelf squad cars and vans, and carted their equipment around in an ESU bus, a nondescript blue-and-white truck. One of these was now parked near the store as a staging vehicle. Sachs and Salido pulled on body armor with shock plates over the heart and headed into Little Italy. The neighborhood had changed dramatically in the past fifteen years. Once a huge enclave of working-class Italian immigrants, it had shrunk to nearly nothing owing to the spread of Chinatown from the south and young professionals from the north and west. 
On Mulberry Street, the two detectives now passed an emblem of this change, the building that was the former Ravenite Social Club, home of the Gambino crime family, which long-gone John Gotti had headed. The club had been seized by the government, resulting in the inevitable nickname Club Fed, and was now just another commercial building looking for a tenant. The two detectives picked a block and began their canvas, flashing their shields and the picture of the unsub to street vendors and clerks in stores, teenagers cutting classes and sipping Starbucks coffee, retirees on benches or front stairs. They'd occasionally hear reports from the other officers. Nothing. Negative on Grand, K. Copy that. Negative on Hester, K. We're trying East. Solito and Sachs continued along their own route, having no more luck than anyone else. A loud bang behind them, Sachs gasped, not at the noise, which she recognized immediately as a truck backfire, but at Solito's reaction. He jumped aside, actually taking cover behind a phone kiosk, his hand on the grip of his revolver. He blinked and swallowed, gave a shallow laugh. Fucking trucks, he muttered. Yeah, Sachs said. He wiped his face, and they continued on. Sitting in his safe house, smelling garlic from one of the nearby restaurants in Little Italy, Thompson Boyd was huddled over a book, reading the instructions it offered and then examining what he'd bought at the hardware store an hour ago. He marked certain pages with yellow post-it tabs, and jotted notes in the margins. The procedures he was studying were a bit tricky, but he knew he'd work through them. There wasn't anything you couldn't do if you took your time. His father taught him that. Hard tasks or easy. It's only a question of where you put the decimal point. He pushed back from the desk, which, along with one chair, one lamp, and one cot, was the only piece of furniture in the place. A small TV set, a cooler, a garbage can. He also kept a few supplies here, things he used in his work. Thompson pulled the latex glove away from his right wrist and blew into it, cooling his skin. Then he did the same with his left. You always assumed a safe house would get tossed at some point, so you took precautions there'd be no evidence to convict you. Whether it was wearing gloves or using a booby trap. His eyes were acting up today. He squinted, put drops in, and the stinging receded. He closed his lids. Whistling softly that haunting song from the movie Cold Mountain. Soldiers shooting soldiers, that big explosion, bayonets. Images from the film cascaded through his mind. That song disappeared, along with the images, and up popped a classical tune, Bolero. Where the tunes came from, he generally couldn't tell. It was like in his head there was a CD changer that somebody else had programmed. But with Bolero, he knew the source. His father had the piece on an album. The big crew-cut man had played it over and over on the green plastic Sears turntable in his workshop. Listen to this part, son. It changes key. Wait, wait, there. You hear that? The boy believed he had. Thompson now opened his eyes and returned to the book. 
Five minutes later, whist, Bolero went away, and another melody started easing out through his pursed lips, time after time. That song Cindy Lauper made famous in the eighties. Thompson Boyd had always liked music and from an early age wanted to play an instrument. His mother took him to guitar and flute lessons for several years. After her accident, his father drove the boy himself, even if that made him late to work. But there were problems with Thompson's advancement. His fingers were too big and stubby for fretboards and flute keys and piano, and he had no voice at all. Whether it was church choir or Willie or Whalen or asleep at the wheel, nope, he couldn't get more than a croak out of the old voice box. So, after a year or two, he turned away from the music and filled his time with what boys normally did in places like Amarillo, Texas, spending time with his family, nailing and planing and sanding in his father's workshed, playing touch-then-tackle football, hunting, dating shy girls, going for walks in the desert. And he tucked his love of music wherever failed hopes go, which usually isn't very far beneath the surface. Sooner or later, they crawl out again. In his case, this happened to be in prison a few years ago. A guard on the maximum security block came up and asked Thompson, What the fuck was that? How do you mean? asked the ever placid average Joe. That song you were whistling. I was whistling? Fuck yes, you didn't know? He said to the guard, Just something I was doing. Wasn't thinking. Damn, sounded good. The guard wandered off, leaving Thompson to laugh to himself. How about that? He had an instrument all along, one he'd been born with, one he carried around with him. Thompson went to the prison library and looked into this. He learned that people would call him an aura whistler, which was different from a tin whistle player, say, like in Irish bands. Aura whistlers are rare. Most people have very limited whistling range and could make good livings as professional musicians in concerts, advertising, TV, and movies. Everybody knew the Bridge on the River Kwai theme, of course. You couldn't even think about it without whistling the first few notes, at least in your head. There were even aura-whistling competitions, the most famous being the International Grand Championship, which featured dozens of performers. Many of them appeared regularly with orchestras around the world and had their own cabaret acts. Another tune came into his head. Thompson Boyd exhaled the notes softly, getting a soft trill. He noticed he'd moved his twenty-two out of reach. That wasn't doing things by the book. He pulled the pistol closer, then returned to the instruction booklet again, sticking more post-it notes onto pages, glancing into the shopping bag to make sure he had everything he needed. He thought that he had the technique down, but as always, when he approached something new— he was going to learn everything cold before executing the job. Nothing, Rhyme, Sack said into the microphone dangling near her ample lips. That his prior good mood had vanished like steam was evident when he snapped, Nothing? Nobody's seen him. Where are you? We've covered basically all of Little Italy. Lon and I are at the south end, Canal Street. Hell! Rhyme muttered. We could... Sack stopped speaking. What's that? What? Rhyme asked. Hold on a minute. To Solito, she said. Come on. 
Displaying her badge, she forced her way through four lanes of thick, attitudinal traffic. She looked around, then started south on Elizabeth Street, a dark canyon of tenements, retail shops, and warehouses. She stopped again. Smell that? Rhyme asked caustically. Smell? I'm asking Lon. Yeah, the big detective said. What is that? Something, you know, sweet. Sachs pointed to a wholesale herbal products, soap, and incense company two doors south of Canal on Elizabeth Street. A strong, flowery scent wafted from the open doors. It was jasmine, the aroma that they'd detected on the rape pack and that Geneva herself had smelled at the museum. We might have a lead rhyme. I'll call you back. This ends Disc 4. The Twelfth Card, Disc 5 Yeah, yeah, the slim Chinese man in the herbal wholesaler said, gazing at the EFIT composite picture of Unsub 109. I see him some, upstairs. He not there a lot. What he do? Is he up there now? Don't know, don't know. Think I saw him today. What he do? Which apartment? The man shrugged. The herbal import company took up the first floor, but at the end of the dim entryway, past a security door, were steep stairs leading up into darkness. Salido pulled out his radio and called in on the operation's frequency. We've got him. Who's this? Howman snapped. Oh, sorry, it's Salido. We're two buildings south of Canal on Elizabeth. We've got a positive ID on the tenant. Might be in the building now. Yes, you command. All units. You copy? K. Affirmative responses filled the airwaves. Sachs identified herself and transmitted, Make it a silent roll-up and stay off Elizabeth. He can see the street from the window in the front. Roger, 5885. What's the address? I'm calling in for a no-knock warrant. K. Sachs gave him the street number. Out. Less than fifteen minutes later, the teams were on site and S&S officers were checking out the front and rear of the building with binoculars and infrared and sonic sensors. The lead search and surveillance officer said, There are four floors in the building. Import warehouses on the ground. We can see into the second and the fourth floors. They're occupied. Asian families. Elderly couple on the second. And the top's got a woman and four or five kids. Howman said, And the third floor? Windows are curtained, but the infrared scans positive for heat. Could be a TV or a heater, but could be human. And we're getting some sounds, music, and the creaking of floors sounds like... Sachs looked at the building directory. The plate above the intercom button for the third floor was empty. An officer arrived and gave Howman a piece of paper. It was the search warrant signed by a state court judge and had just been faxed to the ESU command post truck. Howman looked it over, made sure the address was correct. A wrong no-knock could subject them to liability and jeopardize the case against the unsub. But the paper was in order. Howman said, Two entry teams, four people each, front stairwell and back fire escape. A battering ram at the front. He pulled eight officers from the group and divided them into two groups. One of them, A-team, was to go through the front. B was on the fire escape. He told the second group, You take out the window on the three count and hit him with a flash, bang, two-second delay. Roger. On zero, take out the front door, he said to the head of the A-team. Then he assigned other officers to guard the innocent's doors and to be backup. Now deploy. Move, move, move. The troopers, mostly men, two women, moved out, as Howman ordered. The B-team went around to the back of the building, while Sachs and Howman joined the A-team, along with an officer manning the battering ram. 
Under normal circumstances, a crime scene officer wouldn't be allowed on an entry team. But Hamann had seen Sachs under fire and knew she could pull her own. And, more important, the ESU officers themselves welcomed her. They'd never admitted, at least not to her, but they considered Sachs one of them and were glad to have her. It didn't hurt, of course, that she was one of the top pistol shots on the force. As for Sachs herself, well, she just plain liked doing kick-ins. Solito volunteered to remain downstairs and keep an eye on the street. Her knees aching from arthritis, Sachs climbed with the other officers to the third floor. She stepped close to the door and listened. She nodded to Hauman. I can hear something, she whispered. Hauman said into his radio, Team B, report. We're in position, Sachs heard in her earpiece. Can't see inside, but we're ready to go. The commander looked at the team around them. The huge officer with the battering ram, a weighted tube about three feet long, nodded. Another cop crouched beside him and closed his fingers around the doorknob to see if it was locked. Into his mic, Hauman whispered, Five, four, three. Silence. This was the moment when they should have heard the sound of breaking glass and then the explosion of the stun grenade. Nothing. And something was wrong here, too. The officer gripping the knob was shivering fiercely, moaning. Jesus, Sachs thought, staring at him. The guy was having a fit or something. A tactical entry officer with epilepsy? Why the hell hadn't that shown up in his medical? What's wrong? Hauman whispered to him. The man didn't reply. The quaking grew worse. His eyes were wide, and only the whites showed. B-team report, the commander called into his radio. What's going on, K? Command, the window's boarded up, the B-team leader transmitted. Plywood, we can't get a grenade in. Status of Alpha, K. The officer at the door had slumped now, his hand frozen on the knob, still shivering. Hauman whispered in a harsh voice, We're wasting time. Get him out of the way and take the door out, now. Another officer grabbed the seizing one. The second one began to shake, too. The other officers stepped back. One muttered, What's going... It was then that the first officer's hair caught fire. He wired the door! Hauman was pointing to a metal plate on the floor. You saw these often in old buildings. They were used as cheap patches on hardwood floors. This one, though, had been used by Unsub-109 to make an electric booby trap. High voltage was coursing through both men. Fire was sprouting from the first officer's head, his eyebrows, the backs of his hands, then his collar. The other cop was unconscious now, but still quivering horribly. Jesus, an officer whispered in Spanish. Hauman tossed his H&K machine gun to a nearby officer, took the battering ram, and swung it hard at the wrist of the officer gripping the knob. Bones probably shattered, but the ram knocked his fingers loose. The circuit broken, the two men collapsed. Sacks beat out the flames, which were filling the hallway with a revolting smell of burnt hair and flesh. Two of the backup officers began CPR on their unconscious colleagues, while an A-team cop grabbed the handles of the battering ram and swung it into the door, which burst open. The team raced inside, guns up. Sacks followed. It took only five seconds to learn that the apartment was empty. Chapter 13 Bo Hauman called into his radio. B-team, B-team, we're inside. No sign of the suspect. Get downstairs, sweep the alley. But remember, he waited around at the last scene. He goes for innocence, and he goes for cops. 
A desk lamp burned, and when Sachs touched the seat of the chair, she found it was warm. A small closed-circuit TV sat on the desk, the fuzzy screen showing the hallway in front of the door. He'd had a security camera hidden somewhere outside and seen them coming. The killer had gotten away only moments ago, but where? The officers looked around for an escape route. The window by the fire escape was covered with plywood. The other was uncovered, but it was thirty feet above the alley. He was here. How the hell did he get away? The answer came a moment later. Found this, an officer called. He'd been looking under the bed. He pulled the cot away from the wall, revealing a hole just big enough for a person to crawl through. It looked like the unsub had cut through the plaster and removed the brick wall between this building and the one next door. When he saw them on the TV monitor, he'd simply kicked out the plaster on the other side of the wall and slipped into the adjoining building. Harmon sent more officers to check the roof and nearby streets, others to find and cover the entrances into the building next door. "'Somebody into the hall,' the ESU commander ordered. "'I'll go, sir,' a short officer said. But with his bulky armor, even he couldn't fit through the gap. "'I'll do it,' Sachs said, by far the slimmest of the officers present. "'But I need this room cleared to save the evidence.' "'Roger that. We'll get you inside, then pull back.' Howman ordered the bed moved aside. Sachs knelt down and shone her flashlight through the hole, on the other side of which was a catwalk in a warehouse or factory. To reach it, she had a four-foot crawl through the tight space. "'Shit!' muttered Amelia Sachs. The woman who'd drive one hundred and sixty miles per hour and trade shots face to face with cornered perps but came close to paralysis at the hint of claustrophobia. Head first her feet. She sighed. Headfirst would be spookier but safer. At least she'd have a few seconds to find the unsub's firing position before he could draw a target. She looked into the tight, dark space. A deep breath, pistol in hand, she started forward. What the hell's the matter with me? Lon Salido thought, standing in front of the warehouse beside the herbal goods importer, the building whose front door he was supposed to be guarding. He stared at this doorway and at the windows, looking for the escaped unsub, praying the perp would show up so he could nail him. Praying that he wouldn't. What the hell's the matter? In his years on the force, Salido had been in a dozen firefights, taken weapons off, cranked up psychos, even wrestled a suicide off the roof of the Flatiron Building, with nothing but six inches of ornate trim separating him from heaven. He'd gotten shook sometimes, sure, but he'd always bounced right back. Nothing had ever affected him like Barry's death this morning. Being in the line of fire had spooked him, no denying that, but this was something else. Something to do with being so close to a person at that one moment. The moment of death. He couldn't get the librarian's voice out of his head. His last words as a living person. I didn't really see. Couldn't forget the sound of the three bullets striking his chest either. Tap, tap, tap. They were soft, barely audible, faint slaps. He'd never heard a noise like that. Lon Salito now shivered and felt nauseous. And the man's brown eyes... They were looking right into Salito's when the slugs hit. In a fraction of an instant, there was surprise, then pain, then nothing. It was the oddest thing Salito had ever seen. 
not like drifting off to sleep, not distracted. The only way to describe it, one moment there was something complicated and real behind the eyes, and then, an instant later, even before he crumpled to the sidewalk, there was nothing. The detective had remained frozen, staring at the limp doll lying in front of him, despite the fact that he knew he should be trying to run down the shooter. The medics had actually jostled him aside to get to Barry. Salido had been unable to move. Tap, tap, tap. Then, when it came time to call Barry's next of kin, Salido had balked again. He'd made plenty of those difficult calls over the years. None of them easy, of course, but today he simply couldn't face it. He'd made up some bullshit excuse about his phone and let someone else do the duty. He was afraid his voice would crack. He was afraid he'd cry, which he'd never done in his decades of service. Now he heard the radio report on the futile pursuit of the perp, hearing tap, tap, tap. Fuck, I just want to go home. He wanted to be with Rachel, have a beer with her on their porch in Brooklyn. Well, too early for beer, a coffee. Or maybe it wasn't too early for a beer, or a scotch. He wanted to be sitting there watching the grass and trees, talking, or not saying anything, just to be with her. Suddenly the detective's thoughts shifted to his teenage son, who lived with Salido's ex. He hadn't called the boy for three or four days. Had to do that. He... Shit. Salido realized that he was standing in the middle of Elizabeth Street with his back to the building he was supposed to be guarding, lost in thought. Jesus Christ, what are you doing? The shooter's loose around here somewhere, and you're fucking daydreaming? He could be waiting in that alley there, or the other one, just like he was that morning. Crouching, Salido turned back, examining the dark windows, smudged or shaded. The perp could be behind any one of them, sighting down on him right now with that fucking little gun of his. Tap, tap. The needles from the bullets tearing flesh to shreds as they fanned out. Salido shivered and stepped back, taking refuge between two parked delivery trucks out of sight of the windows. Peering around the side of one van, he watched the black windows. He watched the door. But those weren't what he saw. No, he was seeing the brown eyes of the librarian in front of him, a few feet away. I didn't tap, tap. Life becoming no life. Those eyes. He wiped his shooting hand on his suit trousers, telling himself that he was sweating only because of the body armor. What was with the fucking weather? It was too hot for October. Who the hell wouldn't sweat? I can't see him. Kay, Sachs whispered into her microphone. Say again, was Howman's static reply. No sign of him. Kay. The warehouse into which Unsub 109 had fled was essentially one big open space divided by mesh catwalks. On the floor were pallets of olive oil bottles and tomato sauce cans sealed in shrink wrap. The catwalk she stood on was about thirty feet up around the perimeter, level with the unsub's apartment in the building next door. It was a working warehouse, though probably used only sporadically. There were no signs that employees had been here recently. 
The lights were out, but enough illumination filtered through greasy skylights to give her a view of the place. The floors were swept clean, and she could find no footprints to reveal which way Unsub-109 had gone. In addition to the front door and back-loading dock door, there were two others on the ground floor level to the side, one labeled restroom, the other unmarked. Moving slowly, swinging her glock ahead of her, her flashlight beam seeking a target, Amelia Sachs soon cleared the catwalks in the open area of the warehouse. She reported this to Howman. ESU officers then kicked in the loading dock door of the warehouse and entered, spreading out. Relieved for the reinforcements, she used hand signals to point to the two side doors. The cops converged on them. Howman radioed, We've been canvassing, but nobody's seen him outside. He might still be inside. Kay. Sachs quietly acknowledged the transmission. She walked down the stairs to the main floor, joining up with the other officers. She pointed to the bathroom. On three, she whispered. They nodded. One pointed to himself, but she shook her head, meaning she was going in on point. Sachs was furious that the perp had gotten away, that he had a rape pack and a smiley face bag, that he'd shot an innocent simply for diversion. She wanted this guy nailed, and she wanted to make sure she had a piece of him. She was in the armored vest, of course, but she couldn't help thinking about what would happen if one of those needle bullets hit her face or arm or throat. She held up a single finger. One. Going fast, going low, with two pounds of pressure on the two-and-a-half-pound trigger. You sure about this girl? An image of Lincoln Rhyme came to mind. Two. Then a memory of her patrolman father imparting his philosophy of life from his deathbed. Remember, Amy, when you move, they can't get you. So, move. Three. She nodded. An officer kicked the door open. Nobody was going near any metal doorknobs. And Sachs lunged forward, dropping into a painful crouch and spraying the flashlight beam around the small, windowless bathroom. Empty. She backed out and turned to the other door, the same routine here. On three, another powerful kick. The door cracked inward. Guns and flashlights up. Sachs thought, brother, never easy, is it? She was looking down a long stairway that descended into pitch-black darkness. She noted that there were no backs on the stairs, which meant that the unsub could stand behind them and shoot into their ankles, calves, or backs as they descended. Dark, she whispered. The men shut out their flashlights mounted to the barrels of their machine guns. Sacks went first, knees aching. Twice she nearly tumbled down the uneven, loose steps. Four ESU officers followed her. Corner formation, she whispered, knowing she wasn't technically in charge, but unable to stop herself at this point. The troops didn't question her, touching one another's shoulders to orient themselves. They formed a rough square, each facing outward and guarding a quadrant of the basement. Lights! The beams of the powerful halogens suddenly filled the small space as the guns sought targets. She saw no threat, heard no sounds. Except one fucking loud heartbeat, she thought. But that's mine. The basement contained a furnace, pipes, oil tanks, about a thousand empty beer bottles, piles of trash, a half dozen edgy rats. Two officers probed the stinking garbage bags, but the perp was clearly not here. She radioed Howman what they'd found. No one else had seen a sign of the unsub. All the officers were going to rendezvous with a command post truck to continue the canvas of the neighborhood. 
while Sack searched the scenes for evidence, with everybody keeping in mind that, as at the museum earlier, the killer might still be nearby. Watch your back. Sighing, she replaced her weapon and turned toward the stairs, then paused. If she took the same flight of steps back up to the main floor, a nightmare on her arthritic knees, she'd still have to walk down another flight to street level. An easier alternative was to take the much shorter stairway directly to the sidewalk. Sometimes, she reflected, turning toward it, you just have to pamper yourself. Lon Salito had become obsessed with one particular window. He'd heard the transmission that the warehouse was clear, but he wondered if ESU had actually gotten into all the nooks and crannies. After all, everybody had missed the unsub that morning at the museum. He'd easily gotten within pistol range. Tap, tap, tap. That one window, far right, second floor. It seemed to Salito that it had quivered once or twice. Maybe just the wind. But maybe the motion was from somebody trying to open it, or aiming through it. Tap. He shivered and stepped back. Hey, he called to an ESU officer who had just come out of the herbal importers. Take a look. You see anything in that window? Where? That one. Salito leaned out of cover just a bit and pointed to the black glass square. Nah, but the place is cleared, didn't you hear? Salito leaned out from cover a bit farther, hearing tap, 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 seeing brown eyes going lifeless. He squinted and, shivering, looked the window over carefully. Then, in his periphery, he suddenly saw motion to his left and heard the squeal of a door opening, a flash of light as the cold sun reflected off something metallic. It's him. God, Salito whispered. He went for his gun, crouching and spinning toward the glint, but instead of following procedures when speed-drawing a weapon and keeping his index finger outside the trigger guard, he yanked the Colt from his holster in a panic, which is why the gun discharged an instant later, sending the slug directly toward the spot where Amelia Sachs was emerging from the basement door to the warehouse. Chapter 14 Standing at the corner of Canal and Sixth, a dozen blocks from his safe house, Thompson Boyd waited for the light to change. He caught his breath and wiped his damp face. He wasn't shaken. He wasn't freaked out. The breathlessness and sweat were from the sprint to safety. But he was curious how they'd found him. He was always so careful with his contacts and the phones he used, and always checking to see if he was being followed, that he guessed it had to be through physical evidence. Made sense, because he was pretty sure that the woman in white, walking through the museum library scene like a sidewinder snake, had been in the hallway outside the apartment on Elizabeth Street. What had he left behind at the museum? Something in the rape bag? some bits of trace from his shoes or clothes. They were the best investigators he'd ever encountered. He'd have to keep that in mind. Gazing at the traffic, he reflected on the escape. When he'd seen the officers coming up the stairs, he'd quickly placed the book and the purchases from the hardware store into the shopping bag, grabbed his attaché case and gun, then clicked on the switch that turned the doorknob live. He'd kicked through the wall and escaped into the warehouse next door, climbed to its roof, and then hurried south to the end of the block. 
climbing down a fire escape, he'd turned west and started sprinting, taking the course he'd charted out and practiced dozens of times. Now at Canal and Sixth, he was lost in a crowd waiting for the light to change, hearing the sirens of the police cars joining in the search for him. His face was emotionless, his hands didn't shake, he wasn't angry, he wasn't panicked. This was the way he had to be. He'd seen it over and over again. Dozens of professional killers he'd known had been caught because they panicked, lost their cool in front of the police and broke down under routine questioning. That, or they got rattled during the job, leaving evidence or living witnesses. Emotion, love, anger, fear, makes you sloppy. You had to be cool, distant, numb. Thompson gripped his pistol, hidden in his raincoat pocket, as he watched several squad cars speed up 6th Avenue. The vehicles skidded around the corner and turned east on Canal. They were pulling out all the stops looking for him. Not surprising, Thompson knew. New York's finest would frown on a perp electrocuting one of their own, though in Thompson's opinion it was the cop's own fault for being careless. Then a faint tone of concern sounded in his brain as he watched another squad car skid to a stop three blocks away. Officers got out and began interviewing people on the street. Then another rolled to a stop only two hundred feet from where he now stood, and they were moving this way. His car was parked near Hudson about five minutes away. He had to get to it now, but still the stoplight remained red. More sirens filled the air. This was becoming a problem. Thompson looked at the crowd around him, most of them peering east, intent on the police cars and the officers. He needed some distraction, some cover to get across the street. Just something. Didn't have to be flamboyant, just enough to deflect people's attention for a time. A fire in a trash bin, a car alarm, the sound of breaking glass. Any other ideas? Glancing south to his left, Thompson noticed a large commuter bus headed up 6th Avenue. It was approaching the intersection where the cluster of pedestrians stood. Set fire to the trash bin? Or this? Thompson Boyd decided. He eased closer to the curb behind an Asian girl, slim, in her twenties. All it took was an easy push in her lower back to send her into the bus's path. Twisting in panic, gasping, she slid off the curb. She fell, Thompson cried in a drawl-free shout. Get her! Her wail was cut off as the right-side-view mirror of the bus struck her shoulder and head and flung her body tumbling along the sidewalk. Blood spattered the window and those standing nearby. The brakes screamed, so did several of the women in the crowd. The bus skidded to a stop in the middle of canal, blocking traffic where it would have to remain until the accident investigation. A fire in a trash basket, a breaking bottle, a car alarm, they might have worked, but he decided that killing the girl was more efficient. Traffic was instantly frozen, including two approaching police cars on 6th Avenue. He crossed the street, slowly, leaving the gathering crowd of horrified passers-by who were crying or shouting or just staring in shock at the limp, bloody body crumpled against the chain-link fence. Her unseeing eyes stared blankly skyward. Apparently nobody thought the tragedy was anything more than a terrible accident. 
People running toward her, people calling 911 on mobile phones. Chaos. Thompson now calmly crossed the street, weaving through the stopped traffic. He'd already forgotten the Asian girl and was considering more important matters. He'd lost one safe house. But at least he'd escaped with his weapons, the things he'd bought at the hardware store and his instruction book. There were no clues that the apartment to lead to him or the man who'd hired him. Not even the woman in white could find any connection. Now, this wasn't a serious problem. He paused at a payphone, called voicemail, and received some good news. Geneva Settle, he learned, was attending Langston Hughes High School in Harlem. She was also, he found out, being guarded by police, which was no surprise, of course. Thompson would find out more details soon, presumably where she lived, or even, with some luck, the fact that an opportunity had presented itself and the girl had already been shot to death, the job finished. Thompson Boyd then continued on to his car. A three-year-old Buick in a boring shade of blue, a medium car, an average car for average Joe. He pulled into traffic and circled far around the bus accident congestion. He made his way toward the 59th Street Bridge, his thoughts occupied about what he'd learned in the book he'd been studying for the past hour, the one bristling with post-it tabs, thinking about how he'd put his new skills to use. I don't... I don't know what to say. Miserable Lon Salito was looking up at the captain who'd come directly here from Police Plaza as soon as the brass learned of the shooting incident. Salito sat on the curb, hair askew, belly over his belt, pink flesh showing between the buttons. His scuffed shoes pointed outward. Everything about him was rumpled at the moment. What happened? The large, balding African-American captain had taken possession of Salito's revolver and was holding it at his side, unloaded, the cylinder open, following NYPD procedures after an officer has discharged a weapon. Salito looked into the tall man's eyes and said, I fumbled my piece. The captain nodded slowly and turned to Amelia Sachs. You're okay? She shrugged. It was nothing. Slug hit nowhere near me. Salito could see that the captain knew she was being cool about the incident, making light of it. Her protecting him made the big detective even more miserable. You were in the line of fire, though, the captain said. It wasn't any... You were in the line of fire? Yes, sir, Sachs said. The thirty-eight caliber slug had missed her by three feet. Salito knew it. She knew it. Nowhere near me. The captain looked over the warehouse. This hadn't happened. The perp would have still gotten away. Yep, Bo Howman said. You sure it had nothing to do with his escape? It's going to come up. The ESU commander nodded. It's looking now like the unsub got into the roof of the warehouse and headed north or south. Probably south. The shot, he nodded toward Salito's revolver, was after we'd secured the adjacent buildings. Salito again thought, What's happening to me? Tap, tap, tap. The captain asked, Why'd you draw your weapon? I wasn't expecting anybody to come through the basement door. Did you hear any transmissions about the building being cleared? A hesitation. I missed that. 
the last time Lon Salido had lied to Brass, had been to protect a rookie who'd failed to follow procedure when trying to save a kidnap victim, which he'd managed to do. That had been a good lie. This was a cover-your-own-ass lie, and it hurt like a broken bone to utter it. The captain looked around the scene. Several ESU cops milled about. None of them was looking at Salido. They seemed embarrassed for him. The brass finally said, No injury, no serious property damage. I'll do a report, but a shooting review board's optional. I won't recommend it. The relief flooded through Salido. An SRB for an accidental discharge was a short step away from an internal affairs investigation as far as what it did to your reputation. Even if you were cleared, grime stuck to you for a long, long time. Sometimes forever. Want some time off? the captain asked. No, sir, Silido said firmly. The worst thing in the world for him, for any cop, was downtime after a thing like this. He'd brood, he'd eat himself drunk on junk food, he'd be in a shitty mood to everybody around him, and he'd get even more spooked than he was now. He still recalled with shame how he'd jumped like a schoolgirl at the truck backfire earlier. I don't know. The captain had the power to order a mandatory leave of absence. He wanted to ask Sachs's opinion, but that would be out of line. She was a new junior detective. Still, the captain's hesitation in deciding was meant to give her the chance to pipe up, to say maybe, hey, Lon, yeah, it'd be a good idea, or it's okay, we'll manage without you. Instead, she said nothing which they all knew was a vote in his favor. The captain asked, I understand some wit got killed right in front of you today, right? That have anything to do with this? Fuck yes, fuck no. Couldn't say. Another long debate. But say what you will about brass, they don't rise through the ranks in the NYPD without knowing all about life on the street and what it does to cops. All right. I'll keep you active, but go see a counselor. His face burned, a shrink. But he said, sure, I'll make an appointment right away. Good, and keep me in the loop on how it goes. Yes, sir, thanks. The captain returned his weapon and walked back to the CP with Bo Howman. Salito and Sachs headed for the crime scene unit rapid response vehicle which had just arrived. Amelia. Forget it, Lon. It happened. It's over with. Friendly fire happens all the time. Statistically, cops had a much higher chance of being shot by their own or fellow cops' bullets than by a perps. The heavyset detective shook his head. I just... He didn't know where to go from there. Silence for a long moment as they walked to the bus. Finally, Sachs said... One thing, Lon, word'll go around. You know how that is. But nobody civilian'll hear, not from me. Not being hooked into the wire, the network of police scuttlebutt, Lincoln Rhyme would only learn about the incident from one of them. I wasn't going to ask that. I know, she said, just telling you how I'm going to handle it. She started unloading crime scene equipment. Thanks he said in a thick voice, 
and realized that the fingers of his left hand had returned to the stigmata of blood on his cheek. Tap, tap, tap. It's a lean one, Rhyme. Go ahead, he said through the headset. In her white Tyvek suit, she was walking the grid in a small apartment. A safe house, they knew, because of its sparseness. Most pro-killers had a place like this. They kept weapons and supplies there, and used it as a staging spot for nearby hits and a hidey hole if a gig went bad. What's inside? he asked. A cot, bare desk and chair, lamp, a TV hooked up to a security camera mounted in the hall outside. It's a videotech system, but he's removed the serial number stickers so we don't know when and where it was bought. I found wires and some relays for the electric charge he rigged on the door. The electrostatics match the bass walking shoes. I've dusted everywhere and can't find a single print. Wearing gloves inside his hidey hole. What's up with that? Rhyme speculated. Aside from the fact he's goddamn smart, probably he wasn't guarding the place very carefully and knew it'd get tossed at some point. I'd just love to get a print. He's definitely on file someplace. Maybe a lot of places. I found the rest of the tarot card deck, but there are no store labels on it, and the only card missing is number 12, the one he left at the scene. Okay, I'm going to keep searching. She continued walking the grid carefully, even though the apartment was small and you could see most of it simply by standing in the center and turning 360. Sachs found one piece of hidden evidence. As she passed the cot, she noticed a small sliver of white protruding from under the pillow. She lifted it out, opened the folded sheet carefully. Got something here, Rhyme. A map of the street the African-American Museum's on. There are a lot of details of the alleys and entrances and exits for all the buildings around it. Loading zones, parking spaces, hydrants, manholes, payphones. Man's a perfectionist. Not many killers would go to this much trouble for a hired clip. Stains on it, too, and some crumbs, brownish. Sack sniffed. Garlic. Crumbs look like food. She slipped the map into a plastic envelope and continued the search. I've got some more fibers, like the other ones. Cotton rope, I'd guess. A bit of dust and dirt, that's it, though. Wish I could see the place. His voice trailed to silence. Rhyme? I'm picturing it. He whispered. Another pause, then... What's on the surface of the desk? There's nothing. I told... I don't mean what's sitting on it. I mean, is it stained with ink? Doodles, knife marks, coffee cup rings. He added acerbically, When perps are rude enough not to leave their electric bill lying around, we take what we can get. Yep, the good mood was officially deceased. She examined the wooden top. It's stained, yes. Scratched and scarred. It's wood? Yes. Take some samples. Use a knife and scrape the surface. Sachs found a scalpel in the examination kit. Just like the ones used in surgery, it was sterilized and sealed in paper and plastic. She carefully scraped the surface and placed the results in small plastic bags. As she glanced down, she noticed a flash of light from the edge of the table. She looked. Rhyme. Found some drops. Clear liquid. Before you sample them, hit one with some mirage. Go with X-Spray, too. This guy likes deadly toys way too much. Mirage Technologies makes a convenient explosives detection system. X-Spray number two 
would detect Group B explosives, which include the highly unstable, clear liquid nitroglycerin, even a drop of which could blow off a hand. Sachs tested the sample. Had the substance been explosive, its color would have turned pink. There was no change. She hit the same sample with spray number three, just to be sure. This would show the presence of any nitrates, the key element in most explosives, not just nitroglycerin. Negative rhyme. She collected a second dot of the liquid and transferred the sample to a glass tube, then sealed it. Think that's about it, rhyme? Bring it all back, Sachs. We need to get a jump on this guy. If he can get away from an ESU team that easily, it means he can get close to Geneva just as fast. Chapter 15 She'd aced it. Cold. Twenty-four multiple choices, all correct. Geneva Settle knew. And she'd written a seven-page answer to an essay question that called for only four. Fat. She was chatting with Detective Bell about how she'd done, and he was nodding, which told her he wasn't listening, just checking out the halls. But at least he kept a smile on his face, and so she pretended he was. And it was whack. She felt good rambling like this, just telling him about the curveball the teacher had thrown them in the essay, the way Lynette Tompkins had whispered, Jesus save me, when she realized she'd studied for the wrong subject. Nobody else except Key should be interested in listening to her go on and on like this. Now she had the math test to tackle. She didn't enjoy calc much, but she knew the material. She'd studied. She had the equations nailed cold. Girlfriend? Lakeisha fell into step beside her. Damn, you still here? Her eyes were wide. You nearly got your own ass killed this morning, and you don't stress it none. That's some mad shit, girl. Gum, you sound like you're cracking a whip. Keish kept right on snapping, which Geneva knew she would. You got an A already. Why do you need to take them tests? If I don't take those tests, it won't be an A. The big girl glanced at Detective Bell with a frown. You ask me, you ought to be out looking for that prick done attack my girlfriend here. We've got plenty of people doing that. How many, and where they be? Keish, Geneva whispered. But Mr. Bell gave a faint smile. Plenty of them. Snap, snap. Geneva asked her friend, So how'd the W.C. test go? The world ain't civilized. The world fucked up. But you didn't skip. Told you I'd go. Was deaf, girl. I was all on it. Pretty sure I got myself an C. Least that, maybe even an B. Funny. They came to an intersection of hallways, and Lakeisha turned to the left. Later, girl, call me in the PM. You got it. Geneva laughed to herself as she watched her friend steam through the halls. Quiche seemed like any other fine, hooked up off the rack homegirl with her flashy skin-tight outfits, scary nails, taut braids, cheap bling, dancing like a freak to LL Cool J, Twister and Beyonce, ready to jump into fights, even going right in the face of gangster girls, she sometimes carried a box cutter or a flick knife. She was an occasional DJ who called herself Deaf Mistress K when she spun vinyl at school dances, and at clubs too, where the bouncers chose to let her pass for twenty-one. But the girl wasn't quite as ghetto as she fronted. She'd wear the image the way she'd put on her crazy nails and three-dollar extensions. The clues were obvious to Jen. 
If you listened closely, you could tell that standard English was her first language. She was like those black stand-up comics who sound like homies in their act, but they get the patter wrong. The girl might say, I be at Sammy's last night. But somebody really talking Ebonics, the new politically correct phrase was African-American vernacular English, wouldn't say that. They'd say, I was at Sammy's. B was only used for ongoing or future activity, like I'd be working at Blockbuster every weekend, or I'd be going to Houston with my aunt next month. Or Kish would say, I the first one to sign up. But that was an A-A-V-E, where you never drop the verb to be in the first person, only the second or third. He the first one to sign up was right. But to the casual listener, the girl sounded bred in the hood. Other things, too. A lot of project girls bragged about perping merch from stores. But Keisha had never lifted so much as a bottle of fingernail polish or a pack of braids. She didn't even buy street jewelry from anybody who might have fiended it from a tourist. And the big girl was fast to whip out her cell phone and 911 suspicious kids hanging around apartment lobbies during hunting season. The times of the month when the welfare, ADC, or Social Security checks started hitting the mailboxes. Keish paid her way. She had two jobs, doing extensions and braids on her own and working the counter in a restaurant four days a week. The place was in Manhattan, but miles south of Harlem, to make sure she wouldn't run into people from the neighborhood which would blow her cover as the DJing bling diva of 124th Street. She spent carefully and socked away her earnings to help her family. There was yet one other aspect of Quiche that set her apart from many girls in Harlem. She and Geneva were both in what was sometimes called the sisterhood of none, meaning no sex. Well, fooling around was okay, but as one of Geneva's friends said, ain't no boy putting his ugly in me, and that's weird. The girls had kept the virgin pact she and Geneva had made in middle school. This made them a rarity. A huge percentage of the girls at Langston Hughes had been sleeping with boys for a couple of years. Teenage girls in Harlem fell into two categories, and the difference was defined by one image, a baby carriage. There were those who pushed buggies through the streets and those who didn't. And it didn't matter if you read Entozaki Shange or Sylvia Plath or were illiterate. didn't matter if you wore orange tank tops and store-bought braids or white blouses and pleated skirts. If you ended up on the baby carriage side, then your life was headed in a way different direction from that of girls in the other category. A baby wasn't automatically the end of school and a profession, but it often was. And even if not, a carriage girl could look forward to a heartbreakingly tough time of it. Geneva Settle's inflexible goal was to flee Harlem at the very first opportunity with stops in Boston or New Haven for a degree or two, and then on to England, France, or Italy. Even the slightest risk that something like a baby might derail her plan was unacceptable. Lakeisha was lukewarm about higher education, but she too had her ambitions— she was going to some four-year college and, as a cold, savvy businesswoman, take Harlem by storm. The girl was going to be the Frederick Douglass or Malcolm X of uptown business. It was these common views that made sisters of these otherwise opposite girls. And like most deep friendships, the connection ultimately defied definition. 
Kish put it best once, by waving her bracelet-encrusted hand, tipped in polka-dotted nails, and offering, in a proper use of A.A.V.E.'s third-person singular non-agreement rule, "'Whatever, girlfriend, it worked, don't it?' And yeah, it did. Geneva and Detective Bell now arrived at math class. He stationed himself outside the door. "'I'll be here.' After the test, wait inside. I'll have the car brought round front. The girl nodded, then turned to go inside. She hesitated, glanced back. I wanted to say something, Detective. What's that? I know I'm not too agreeable sometimes. Pig-headed people say, well, mostly they say I'm a pain in the ass, but thanks for what you're doing. Just my job, miss. Besides, half the witnesses and folk I protect aren't worth the concrete they walk on. I'm happy to be looking after somebody decent. Now, go for another twenty-four multiple choice in a row. She blinked. You were listening? I thought you weren't paying attention. I was listening, yes, um, and looking out for you. Though I'll fess up, doing two things at once is pretty much my limit. Don't go expecting more than that. Okay, now. I'll be here when you get out. And I am going to pay you back for lunch. I told you that's on the mayor. Only you paid it for yourself. You didn't get a receipt. Well, now, look at that. You notice know stuff, too. Inside the classroom, she saw Kevin Cheney standing in the back, talking to a few of his crew. He lifted his head, acknowledging her with a big smile, and strode over to her. Nearly every girl in class, whether pretty or plain, followed his stroll. Surprise, then shock, flashed in their eyes when they saw where he was headed. Hey, she thought to them triumphantly, wrap your minds round that. I'm in heaven. Geneva Settle looked down, face hot with pumping blood. Yo, girl, he said, walking up close. She smelled his aftershave. Wondered what it was. Maybe she'd find out his birthday and buy him some. Hi, she said, voice trembling. She cleared her throat. Hi. Okay, she'd had her moment of glory in front of the class, which would last forever, but now, once again, all she could think of was keeping him at a distance, making sure he didn't get hurt because of her. She'd tell him how dangerous it was to be around her. Forget snapping, forget yo mama jokes, get serious. Tell him what you really feel, that you're worried about him. But before she could say anything, he gestured her to the back of the classroom. Come on over here, got something for you. For me? she thought. A deep breath, and she walked after him to the corner of the room. Here, got your present. He slipped something into her hand. Black plastic. What was it? A cell phone? Pager? You weren't allowed to have them in school. Still, Geneva's heart pounded hard, wondering about the purpose of the gift. Was it to call him if she was in danger? Or could it be so that he could get in touch with her whenever he wanted to? This is fat, she said, looking it over. She realized that it wasn't a phone or beeper, but one of those organizer things, like a Palm Pilot. Got games, internet, email, all wireless. Whack how those things work. Thanks, only, well, it looks expensive, Kevin. I don't know about this. Oh, it's cool, girl. You'll earn it. She looked up at him. Earn it? Listen up, nothing to it. My boys and me tried it out. It's already hooked up to mine. He tapped his shirt pocket. 
What you do is, first thing to remember, keep it between your legs. Better if you wear a skirt. Teachers don't go looking there, or they get their ass sued, you know? Now, the first question on the test, you push the one button there, see it? Then push that space button, and then type in the answer. You down with that? The answer? Then, listen up, this is important. You gotta push this button to send it to me. That little button with the antenna on it. You don't push it, it don't send. Second question, push two, then the answer. I don't understand. He laughed, wondering why she wasn't getting it. What you think? We got a deal, girl. I'll cover your back on the street, you cover mine in class. The realization hit her like a slap. Her eyes looked up, bored into his. You mean cheat? He frowned. Don't go talking that shit out loud. Looking around. You're kidding. This is a joke. Joke? No, girl. You gonna help me? Not a question. An order. She felt she was about to choke or be sick. Her breathing came fast. I'm not gonna do it. She held the organizer out. He didn't take it. What's your problem? A lot of girls help me. Alicia, Geneva whispered angrily, nodding and recalling a girl who'd been in math class with them until recently, Alicia Goodwin, a smart girl, a whiz in math. She'd left school when her family had moved to Jersey. She and Kevin had been tight, so that's what this was all about. When he'd lost his partner, Kevin had gone looking for a new one and picked Geneva, a better student than her predecessor, but not nearly as good-looking. Geneva wondered how far down on the list she'd fallen. Anger and pain raged in her like fire in a boiler. This was even worse than what had happened at the museum this morning. At least the man in the mask hadn't pretended to be her friend. Judas. Geneva raged. You got a stable of girls feeding you the answers. What did your GPA be if it weren't for them? I'm not stupid, girl he whispered angrily. Just, I don't need to learn this shit. I'll be playing ball and getting tall paper for endorsements the rest of my life. Better for everybody for me to practice instead of study. For everybody. She gave a sour laugh. So that's where your grades come from. You steal them. Like you'd fiend somebody in Times Square for a gold chain. Yo, girl, I'm telling you, watch your mouth, he whispered ominously. I'm not helping you, she muttered. Then he smiled, giving her a lowered-lid gaze. I'll make it worth your while. You come over to my place any time you want. I'll fuck you good. I'll even go down on you. I know what I'm about in that department. Go to hell, she shouted, heads turned. Listen up, he growled, gripping her arm hard. Pain surged. You got the booty of a ten-year-old, and you go round like some blondie from Long Island, thinking you're better than everybody. A peasy-haired bitch like you can't be too choosy when it comes to a man. You know what I'm saying? Where you gonna find somebody good as me? Geneva gasped at the insult. You're disgusting. Okay, girl, fine. You frigid, that's cool. I pay you to help me. How much you want? A C-note? Two? I got tall paper. Come on, name your price. I gotta pass this test. Then study, she snapped and flung the organizer at him. He caught it in one hand and yanked her close to him with the other. Kevin, a man's voice called sternly. Fuck, the boy whispered in disgust, closing his eyes momentarily, letting go of her arm. Mr. Abrams, the math teacher, walked up and took the organizer away. He looked at it. What's this? He wanted me to help him cheat, Geneva said. 
The bitch is whack. It's hers, and she— Come on, we're going to the office, he said to Kevin. The boy stared at her with cold eyes. She glared right back. The teacher asked, You all right, Geneva? She was rubbing her arm where he'd gripped her. She lowered her hand and nodded. Just want to go to the bathroom for a few minutes. Go ahead. He said to the class, all staring, all quiet, We'll have a study period for ten minutes before the test. The teacher escorted Kevin out the back door of the classroom, which filled suddenly with rapid-fire gossip as if somebody had clicked off the mute button on a TV. Geneva waited a few seconds, then followed. Looking up the corridor, she saw Detective Bell standing with his arms crossed near the front door. He didn't see her. She stepped into the hallway and plunged into the crowd of students heading for their classes. Geneva settled didn't make for the girls' room, however. She came to the end of the hallway and pushed through the door into the deserted schoolyard, thinking, "'Nobody on earth's going to see me cry.' There, not a hundred feet from him. Jax's heart gave a fast thud when he saw Geneva settle standing by herself in the schoolyard. The graffiti king was in the mouth of an alley across the street, where he'd been for the past hour, waiting for a glimpse of her. But this was even better than he hoped. She was alone. Jax looked over the block. There was an unmarked police car with a cop inside, in front of the school, but it was some ways from the girl, and the cop wasn't looking to the schoolyard. He wouldn't be able to see her from where he was, even if he turned around. This might be easier than he'd thought. So quit standing around, he told himself. Get your ass moving. He pulled a black do-rag out of his pocket, slipped down his fro with it. Easing forward, pausing beside a battered panel truck, the ex-con scanned the playground, which reminded him a lot of the yard at prison, minus, of course, the razor wire and gun towers. He decided he could cross the street here and use the cover of a food emporium tractor-trailer that was parked along the sidewalk, its engine idling. He could get to within maybe twenty-five feet of her without being seen by Geneva or the cop. That'd be plenty close enough. As long as the girl continued to look down, he could slip through the chain link unnoticed. She'd be spooked after everything that had happened to her, and if she got a glimpse of him approaching— She'd probably turn and run, shouting for help. Go slow. Be careful. But move now. You may not get a chance like this again. Jack started for the girl, picking his steps carefully to keep his limping leg from shuffling leaves and giving him away. Chapter 16 Was that the way it always worked? Did boys always want something from you? In Kevin's case, he wanted her mind. Well, wouldn't she have been just as upset if she'd been built like Lakeisha and he'd hit on her for booty or boobs? No, she thought angrily. That was different. That was normal. The counselors at school talked a lot about rape, about saying no, about what to do if a boy got too pushy, what to do after if it happened. But they never said a word about what to do if somebody wanted to rape your mind. Shit, shit, shit. Her teeth ground together, and she wiped the tears, flung them away on her fingertips. Forget him, he's a lame asshole. The calc test, that's all that's important. 
d over dx times x to the nth equals motion to her left. Geneva looked in that direction and, squinting against the sun, saw a figure across the street in the shadows of a tenement, a man with a black do-rag on his head and wearing a dark green jacket. He'd been walking toward the schoolyard, but then disappeared behind a big truck nearby. Her first panicked thought, the man from the library had come for her. But no, this guy was black. Relaxing, she glanced at her swatch. Get back inside. Only, despairing, she thought about the looks she'd get. Kevin's boys who'd give her the bad eye. The bling girls who'd stare and laugh. Get her down. Get the bitch down. Forget about them. Who gives a shit what they think? The test is all that matters. D over dx times x to the nth equals nx to the nth minus one. As she started back with the side door, she wondered if Kevin would be suspended. Or maybe expelled. She hoped so. D over dx times... It was then that she heard the scrape of footsteps from the street. Geneva stopped and turned. She couldn't see anyone clearly because of the glare of the bright sun. Was it the black man in the green jacket coming toward her? The sound of footsteps paused. She turned away, started toward the school, pushing aside every thought but the power rule of calculus, equals nx to the ninth minus one, which is when she heard footsteps again, moving fast now. Somebody was charging forward, headed straight for her. She couldn't see. Who is it? She held her hand up to block the fierce sunlight, and her detective Bell's voice called, Geneva, don't move! The man was sprinting forward with someone else, Officer Pulaski at his side. Miss, what happened? Why'd you come outside? I was... Three police cars squealed up nearby. Detective Bell looked up toward the large truck, squinting into the sun. Pulaski, that's him! Go, go, go! They were looking at the receding form of the man she'd seen a minute ago, the one in the green jacket. He was jogging away quickly with a slight limp down an alley. I'm on it! The officer sprinted after him. He squeezed through the gate and disappeared into the alley in pursuit of the man. Then a half-dozen police officers appeared in the schoolyard. They fanned out and surrounded Geneva and the detectives. "'What's going on?' she asked. Hurrying her toward the cars, Detective Bell explained that they'd just heard from an FBI agent, somebody named Del Rey, who worked with Mr. Rhyme. One of his informants had learned that a man in Harlem had been asking about Geneva that morning, trying to find which school she went to and where she lived.' He was African-American and wearing a dark green army jacket. He'd been arrested on a murder charge a few years ago and was now armed, because the attacker in the museum that morning was white and might not know Harlem very well. Mr. Rhyme concluded he'd decided to use an accomplice who knew the neighborhood. After Mr. Bell learned this, the detective had gone into the classroom to get her and found out that she'd slipped out the back door. But Jeanette Monroe, the undercover cop, had been keeping an eye on her and followed her. She'd then alerted the police to where Geneva was. Now, the detective said, they had to get her back to Mr. Rhymes immediately. But the test, I... No tests, no school until we catch this guy, Bell said firmly. Now, come on, miss. Furious at Kevin's betrayal, furious that she'd been dragged into the middle of this mess, she crossed her arms. I have to take that test. Geneva, you don't know what kind of muley I can be. I aim to keep you alive, and if that means picking you up and carrying you to my car, rest assured I will do just that. 
His dark eyes, which had seemed so easygoing, were now hard as rocks. All right, she muttered. They continued toward the cars, the detective looking around them, checking the shadows. She noticed his hand was near his side, close to his gun. The blonde-haired officer trotted up to them a moment later. Lost him, he gasped, catching his breath. Sorry. Bell sighed. Any description? Black, six feet, solid build, limp, black do-rag, no beard or mustache, late thirties, early forties. Did you say anything else, Geneva? She shook her head sullenly. Bell said, Okay, let's get out of here. She climbed into the back of the detective's Ford with the blonde officer beside her. Mr. Bell started for the driver's side. The counselor they'd met earlier, Mrs. Barton, hurried up, a frown on her face. Detective, what's wrong? We have to get Geneva out of here. Might be that one of the people wants to hurt her was close by. Still could be, for all we know. The heavy woman looked around, frowning. Here? We aren't sure. A possibility, all I'm saying. Just better to play it safe. The detective added, We're thinking he was here about five minutes ago. African-American, good-sized fellow, wearing a green army jacket and do-rag, clean-shaven, limping. He was on the far side of the schoolyard by that big truck there. Could you ask students and teachers if they know him or saw anything else? Of course. He asked her, too, to see if any school security tapes might have picked him up. They exchanged phone numbers. Then the detective dropped into the driver's seat, started the engine. Buckle up, everybody. We aren't exactly going to be moseying on out of here. Just as Geneva clicked her seatbelt on, the policeman hit the gas and the car skidded away from the curb and started a roller coaster ride through the ragged streets of Harlem as Langston Hughes High School, her last fortress of sanity and comfort, disappeared from view. This ends Disc 5, the twelfth card, Disc 6. As Amelia Sachs and Lon Salito organized the evidence she'd collected at the safe house on Elizabeth Street, Rhyme was thinking about Unsub 109's accomplice, the man who'd just gotten real damn close to Geneva at her school. There was a possibility that the Unsub had been using this man solely for surveillance, except that with the ex-con's violent background and the fact he was armed, he too was probably prepared to kill her himself. Rhyme had hoped that the man had shed some evidence near the schoolyard. But no, a crime scene team had looked over the area carefully and found nothing. And a canvas team had located no witnesses on the street who'd seen him or how he got away. Maybe, hi, Lincoln, a male voice said. Startled, Rhyme looked up and saw a man standing nearby, in his mid-forties with broad shoulders, a close-cropped cap of silver hair, bangs in the front. He wore an expensive, dark gray suit. Doctor, didn't hear the bell. Tom was outside. He let me in. Robert Sherman, the doctor supervising Rhyme's physical therapy, ran a clinic that specialized in working with spinal cord injury patients. It was he who developed Rhyme's regimen of therapy, the bicycle and the locomotor treadmill, as well as aqua therapy and the traditional range of motion exercises that Tom performed on Rhyme. The doctor and Sachs exchanged greetings, then he glanced at the lab, noting the bustle of activity. From a therapeutic point of view, he was pleased that Rhyme had a job. 
Being engaged in an activity, he'd often said, vastly improved one's will and drive to improve, though he caustically urged Rhyme to avoid situations where he could be, say, burnt to death, which had nearly happened in a recent case. The doctor was talented and amiable and damn smart. But Rhyme had no time for him at the moment, now that he knew two armed perps were after Geneva. He greeted the medico in a distracted mood. My receptionist said you canceled the appointment today. I wondered if you were okay. A concern that could easily have been addressed via telephone, the criminalist reflected. But that way the doctor couldn't have put the same pressure on Rhyme to take the tests as he could in person. And Sherman had indeed been pressuring him. He wanted to know that the exercise plan was paying off, not only for the patient's sake, but also so that the doctor himself could incorporate the information into his ongoing studies. No, everything's fine, Rhyme said. A case just fell into our laps. He gestured toward the evidence board. Sherman eyed it. Tom stuck his head in the doorway. Doctor, you want some coffee? Soda? Oh, we don't want to take up the doctor's precious time, Rhyme said quickly. Now that he knows that there's nothing wrong, I'm sure he'll want to... A case? Sherman asked, still looking over the board. After a moment, Rhyme said in a brittle voice, A tough one. Very bad man out there. One we were in the process of trying to catch when you stopped by. Rhyme wasn't inclined to give an inch and didn't apologize for his rude behavior. But doctors or therapists who deal with SCI patients know that they come with some bonuses, anger, bad attitudes, and searing tongues. Sherman was completely unaffected by Rhyme's behavior. The doctor continued to study Rhyme as he responded. No, nothing for me, Tom, thank you. I can't stay long. You sure? A nod toward Rhyme. Don't mind him. I'm fine, yes. But even though he didn't want a refreshing beverage, even though he couldn't stay long, nonetheless, here he was, not making any immediate move to depart. In fact, he was pulling up a fucking chair and sitting down. Sachs glanced toward Rhyme. He gave her a blank look and turned back to the doctor, who scooted his chair closer. Then he leaned forward and whispered, Lincoln, you've been resisting the tests for months now. It's been a whirlwind. Four cases we've been working on, and now five. Time-consuming, as you can imagine. And fascinating, by the way, unique issues. Hoping the doctor would ask him for some details, which would at least deflect the course of the conversation. But the man didn't, of course. SCI doctors never went for the bait. They'd seen it all. Sherman said, Let me say one thing. And how the hell can I stop you? thought the criminalist. You've worked harder on our exercises than any other patient of mine. I know you're resisting the test because you're afraid it won't have had any effect. Am I right? Not really, doctor. I'm just busy. As if he hadn't heard, Sherman said, I know you're going to find considerable improvement in your overall condition and functional status. Doctor talk could be as prickly as cop talk, Rhyme reflected. He replied, I hope so. But if not, believe me, it doesn't matter. I've got the muscle mass improvement, the bone density improvement. Lungs and heart are better. That's all I'm after, not motor movement. Sherman eyed him up and down. You really feel that way? Absolutely. Looking around, he lowered his voice as he said, These exercises won't let me walk.
No, that won't happen. So why would I want some tiny improvement in my left little toe? That's pointless. I'll do the exercises, keep myself in the best shape I can, and in five or ten years, when you folks come up with a miracle graft or clone or something, I'll be ready to start walking again. The doctor smiled and clapped his hand on Rhyme's leg, a gesture he didn't feel. Sherman nodded. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Lincoln. The biggest problem I have is patients giving up because they find that all the exercise and hard work doesn't really change their lives very much. They want big wins and cures. They don't realize that this kind of war is won with small victories. I think I've already won. The doctor rose. I'd still like those scans done. We need the data. As soon as... Hey, Lon, are you listening? Incoming cliché. As soon as the deck is cleared. Salito, who had no clue what Rhyme was talking about or didn't care, gave him a hollow look. All right, Sherman said and walked to the door. And good luck with the case. We'll hope for the best, Rhyme said cheerily. The man of small victories left the townhouse, and Rhyme immediately turned back to the evidence boards. Sachs took a call and listened for a moment, hung up. That was Bo Howman. Those guys on the entry team, the ones who took the electricity, the first one's got some bad burns, but he'll live. The other one's been released. Thank God, Salito said, seeming hugely relieved. Man, what that must have been like. All that juice going through you? He closed his eyes momentarily. The burns and the smell, Jesus. His hair was fucking burnt off. I'll send him something. No, I'll take him a present myself, maybe flowers. Think he'd like some flowers? This reaction, like his earlier behavior, wasn't typical of Salito. Cops got hurt and cops got killed, and everybody on the force accepted that reality in his or her own way. There were plenty of officers who'd say, Thank God he's alive and blessed themselves and trot to the closest church to pray their thanks. But Salido's way was to nod and get on with the job, not to act like this. No clue, Rhyme said. Flowers? Mel Cooper called out, Lincoln, I've got Captain Ned Seely on the line. The tech had been talking to the Texas Rangers about the killing in Amarillo, that Vicap had reported was similar to the incident at the museum. Speaker it. He did, and Rhyme asked, Hello, Captain. Yes, sir, came the response, a drawl. Mr. Rhyme? That's right. Got your associate's request for information on the Charlie Tucker case? I pulled what he had, but it wasn't much. You think it's the same fella causing a stir up your way? The M.O.'s similar to an incident we had here this morning. His shoes were the same brand, so was the treadwear. And he left some fake evidence to lead us off, the same way he left those candles and occult markings of Tucker's killing. Oh, and our perps got a southern accent. There was also a similar killing in Ohio a few years later. That one was a contract hit. So y'all are thinking somebody hired this fellow to kill Tucker? Maybe. Who was he? Tucker? Ordinary fellow? Just retired from the Department of Justice. That's our corrections outfit down here. Was happily married, a grandfather, never in any trouble. Went to church regular. Rhyme frowned. What did he do for prisons? Guard? In our maximum security facility in Amarillo. Hmm. You thinking maybe a prisoner hired somebody to get even for something that happened inside? Prisoner abuse or some such? 
Could be, Rhyme said. Did Tucker ever get written up? Nothing in the file here about it. You might want to check with the prison. Rhyme got the name of the warden of the facility where Tucker had worked and then said, Thanks, Captain. Nothing to it. Y'all have a good day. A few minutes later, Rhyme was on the line with Warden J.T. Beauchamp of the Northern Texas Maximum Security Correction Facility in Amarillo. Rhyme identified himself and said he was working with the NYPD. Now, Warden, J.T., if you please, sir. All right, J.T. Rhyme explained the situation to him. Charlie Tucker? Sure, the guard who was killed. Lynching or whatever. I wasn't here then. Tucker retired just before I moved from Houston. I'll pull his file, put you on hold. A moment later, the warden returned. I've got it right here. Nope, no formal complaints against him. Excepting from one prisoner, he said Charlie was riding him pretty hard. When Charlie didn't stop, they got into a little scuffle about it. That could be our man, Rhyme pointed out. Excepting the prisoner was executed a week later, and Charlie didn't get himself killed for another year. But maybe Tucker hassled another prisoner who hired somebody to even the score. Possible. Only hiring a pro for that? Little sophisticated for our lot down here. Rhyme tended to agree. Well, maybe the perp was a prisoner himself. He went after Tucker as soon as he got out, then set up the murder to look like some ritual killing. Could you ask some of your guards or other employees? We'd be looking for a white male, forties, medium build, light brown hair, probably doing time for a violent felony, and probably released or escaped. No escapes. Not from here, the warden added. Okay, then, released not long before Tucker was killed. That's about all we know. Oh, 